0: Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from, Tales Outer, from Outer, Space. Outer Space. This episode will have TFOS 1108 to 1121. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1108 Story number one. Impossibilities, written by a glass of whiskey. The problem with humans, and impossible problems, it is often thought, is that they have too much imagination and little regard for the impossible. So, it was with the impossibility drive, some name because it was theoretically impossible. Like a moth to a flame, you couldn't have given it a more tempting name for a human if you tried. Oh, working on that, are they? An old researcher's voice filled with disdain. Well, you can explain to a human that it is impossible, but you can't stop them from trying. But what if they succeed? A younger, less cynical research assistant who had first have been told about the experiment. You don't seem to fully grasp the meaning of the word impossible. It has been extensively proven through rigorous models that nothing like it can be done. Would you doubt our fundamental basis? Of course not. But deep down, he had doubts. The younger research assistant rushed into the city's office. Have you heard? They actually built one, yes? I thought I explained this to you earlier. They can't stop themselves. It's something in the name, I believe. But to actually build one? It was huge, yes. Yes, it was. Brew up on first try, if I remember the article correctly. With a sad sigh, he continued. Humans, so wasteful. The resources spent on it could have powered our, more theoretical, half for a hundred years. Well, hard to blame them for trying, although we certainly should. The assistant wasn't so sure about this. Although it had been a tremendous waste of resources, he left the office feeling a bit down. Now that it had blown up in their faces, it was unlikely that the humans would continue. It seems that the humans did good this time, after all. This time it was the senior who brought the news to his assistant. Really? Wasn't it just a big waste, as you said? Told you so's were a rarity for the assistant, and he was damned if he was going to let one slip by. Of course, but they managed to get some useful data out of it, at least. He said with a tone of voice that suggested that this was, of course, entirely accidental. With this, the impossibility drive seems to be theoretically possible. So, you think they'll build more of them? I would hope not. These parameters are too wide. You would need to build hundreds of them to have a chance. Now, now's our time to shine. The assistant wasn't so sure about that. They had, after all, built the first one out of far more adverse odds. The researcher sat with the latest article about the human experiment in his hands, intensely reading it over and over. It wasn't that it was hard to read. He just couldn't believe it. Of course, he had been right. At least a hundred of them needed to be built to have a chance. It had taken them thousands. The sheer scale of it was hard to believe. Resources expended could have powered his lab for, a um, paternity, or, or close to it. Worst of all, he now had an uppity researcher system who he would never hear the end of it from him. Madness. Pure madness. End of story. Story number two. But what are they good for? Written by ad 2584 The humans of Earth were lined up, eager to be processed and loaded aboard an interstellar transport. Since becoming a recent member in the galactic community, one of the first things to do for a new member is to diversify them out to more than just their typical single world. This was done with land grants and trailbreaker and groundbreaker breaker and even keystone galactic outreach programs. These programs were stylized to suit the human nature's call to explore, had to be the first, and the humans signed up by the millions. The Galactic Outreach Department knew its trade well. The ship's quartermaster, AI, stopped a farmer next to enter the transport. Halt, citizen, it said. "You brought animals with you. Hal looked a bit perplexed. Um, yeah, they're pigs. I'm a pig farmer. The AI cogitated on the new data a bit. There were several unfamiliar words. It said... Citizen Hal, the colony transport has limited space to allow quite so many pets. Ha! Hal guffawed. These ain't pets. Nah, I breed them. The AI added new data. Breed them? To birth even more. For what purpose? There must be a purpose with this much animal mass, and they are quite filthy. Do they have names? Hal looked confused. Names? Nah, that would just be weird. The AI was perplexed. It could perceive no useful need for this many pigs on its ship. Citizen Hal, I apologize. I'm afraid they will not be allowed on my ship unless they have a very useful purpose. He looked distressed. Well, um, then what do I do over there? I need my pigs. We need our pigs. The AI registered a key point. The pigs serve the community? Um, well, uh, sorta. Hal said as the pig started to spread out and eat trash and debris dropped at the base of the ramp. The AI noted and commented, They are compost consumers. Well, yeah, they'll eat practically anything, but uh, that's not really the point of them. The AI also noted, There'll be very minimal food waste on a new colony, at any case. The dietary polls issued daily will have been designed to meet every human nutritional need. Hal made a face. Yeah... There's that part, too. The AI got impatient. Citizen Hal, these creatures are too many, too heavy, too filthy. I cannot permit them on this colony transport unless you can give me three solid purposes for the colony to bring these animals, and that the majority of the future community would need to agree is a valid contribution to the colony, in spite of the listed attractions. He scratched his chin. Three reasons for, uh, that they're good for her. Yes, citizen, provide three purposes, and I will post a poll with everyone registered to go on board this ship to see if they can go. Otherwise, you'll have to leave them here. Hal's eyes brightened, and he stood straight and snapped his finger. Oh, I got it! So you want three purposes, right? Uh, That a good bunch of all of us going would want to take pigs with them. Yes, citizen, I await three purposes for the survey. Okay, here you go. Ham... Pork chops, bacon. Yeah, you go ask if they want those things in our new colony. In the line behind Hal, and from the interested passengers looking out of the loading bay at the scene, everyone's G-Phone, galactic-issued version of a smartphone tablet, lit up, and everyone looked down and did the survey. The AI noted that 97% of the registered citizens hit yes almost instantly. The AI did not know the meaning of the three purposes Citizen Hull presented, but the results of the poll was unmistakable. Right this way, Citizen Hull. I will find a place for your, um, pigs. The AI scheduled a future investigation into what those words meant. Ham, pork chop, bacon. They were strange terms with no obvious association with the pig animals. These pigs must be very useful indeed to perform those functions. For them to want to take that tonnage and mess of them all along with them. The AI was mildly interested to see just how and why it was so instantly worth it to everyone. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1109. Story number one. The second attack of the dead men. Written by some person 21. When humanity joined the galactic stage, It found a UN-like structure, a galactic union, one in which every spacefaring species had a seat. The problem was, it was about as useless as the UN, only being good for relief efforts, galactic data, and being the galactic political thunderdome. Humanity, when it joined this union, found out it had been one of the unluckiest homeworlds. Being surrounded in three directions by expansionist empires, all three of which began eyeing the resources of humanity enviously. The good news was that humanity had managed to make a business deal with two of those expansionist empires, quickly forming an economic bond that war would cause major ripples for both. The bad news was the third empire. Facing towards the galactic center, the Felhek had been the strongest of the three empires that surrounded Earth, and they didn't want... A business deal due to said economic bonds the bullhack wouldn't risk disrupting and angering the two other empires otherwise they would be overwhelmed that was until someone screwed up something somewhere and it was chaotic now the details of the screw-up aren't important what is important is that both the smaller empires had to divert their attention somewhere else Specifically, to the point the Balhek could have invaded without having them intervene on humanity's side. And so, the Balhek invaded. Of course, the invasion force was crippled by the start, because who doesn't put defenses on the border of your enemies, who's only being held back by your neighbors, who have a whole lot more stuff to do. Eventually, the Balhek broke through, and because they don't have something called the Geneva Convention, Humanity decided to say, feck it, and just, for this war, ditched those rules, as they weren't going to be invading Falhek's space anytime soon. Two months after the war, an Arctic world that was settled by the Scandinavian Confederacy, Eurasian Union, and Canadians from the United States of North America, which also owns Bermuda Island and Greenland for those wanting a map. The battle had been raging for a week, The human defenders were easily able to hold the dense forests and huge mountain ranges whilst conducting guerrilla war everywhere else. The Cadillac mountain range, named after the car, Canadian and Russian forces held forts on their respective sides, keeping the Felhek away. It was in one particular fort that the story occurs. The fort Ulyanov, Lenin's actual last name, the Eurasians held, The fort had strong enough shields and armor to make artillery useless, enough guns to make an assault, suicide. It was too cold for viruses to spread fast enough, and enough anti-mare and anti-orbital capabilities that bombing it was too risky. So the FALAC decided to use chemical weapons, namely a mix of chlorine and mustard gas with a little bit of Agent Orange mixed in. And so, with the wind blowing against the fort, they made the mistake of gassing the primarily Russian-held fort with toxic gas. The Russians, of course, knew this all too well, and as such, for those who couldn't either put on or reach their gas masks, they repaired bayonets. After around five minutes since the gassing started, a hymn started ringing out, one of the Falleck translators, said to be a song called Sacred War. With that, They thought the soldiers in the fort were mourning and dying, and as such, moved in. It wasn't until they were right up the gas wall that they created did they realize their mistake. As thousands of soldiers charged, yelling their hearts out, with skin melting and bleeding, eyes burnt, and suffering the long-term consequences of Agent Orange. They yelled, the likes of which immediately shattered the morale of the Felic who tried to run from the dead men. To say it was a slaughter would be accurate as the dead men didn't let up. They didn't stop to catch their breath. They didn't slow down. No, they kept charging, stabbing any phallic that fell behind to death with bayonets. It was glorious to watch as the soldiers from the fort surrounding began charging themselves, using the panic and the fear of the dead men to utterly crush the phallic. The charge ended up resulting in the death of some phallic high command, who were unluckily at the front lines during the charge. It also dropped phallic morale everywhere and every soldier began to fear the fallen rising up to exact revenge. The planet wouldn't fall, the invasion repulsed and the phallic scarred, and as they were forced to make peace under the threat of the two other empires intervening on humanity's side. The propaganda and news machine spewed galaxy-wide headlines of The Dead Men Charge, what's more? The second charge took place on August 6th, 2215, the official 300th anniversary of the first attack of the Dead Men. End of story. Story number two. The humans are fragile, and so are their minds. Written by Voidy Boy. I was traveling the galaxy in search of stories to share, maybe make some of my own, and perhaps gain some companions. As a couple cycles went by, I heard of many a tale from a few. Some told me of wars, other artists, or other fantastical events that unfolded in front of them. But then I heard a story from the Yarag. It was a somebody. day and I was wandering the streets in search of somebody who might have had a story, but no one seemed to have any that piqued my interest. Then I saw the urug amongst the crowd, a species renowned for their incredible memory and remarkably long lifespan. I knew this being would have at least one good tale, in vivid detail no less, Approaching it, I asked if it would mind telling me a tale or two. It looked at me, and ever so reluctantly agreed to move ahead with the recounting of its tale. It brought me to its home, and sat down on a small object near a small garden filled with strange vegetation. It was small, petite, and seemed distant. The voice of the rag tore me back into reality. Are we going to start? I replied, yes, of course. So began the tale from the ancient being. Have you heard of a species known as humans? It spoke as it stared at a small vegetation near it. No, I'm afraid I have not, I replied. The Urog replied with sadness. The humans were a small race that existed near the rim of the galaxy, Their bodies were fragile, their bone structure suffering under even the planet's gravity, their body easily punctured or destroyed, and their physiology unable to handle many things. But despite this, they were still eager and ready to join us in the stars. Long ago, I had been assigned to work with the humans on board their ships as a doctor, As I boarded the ship, I saw them scurry about around me, examining me in awe and amazement. I politely shooed them away and went to my post on the ship. That's when I met my fellow doctor by the name of Henry. He was small even by human standards and was hubris. Joking around, he was the ship's goofball, as the human crewmates described him. We grew close, and as the years passed in service of the human ships, I saw wondrous things that the humans claimed to be mundane. Then, as we all parted our ways after the ship was decommissioned, I remained in contact with Henry, chatting and visiting every now and again. Then one visit, Henry behaved almost strangely, forgetting my name, not remembering where items were, but he seemed to remain the goofball he was, and shrugged it off. Then, on another visit, he seemed to blank out at random times, and stare off into empty space. He forgot a lot about me, and so much else. Strangely, in so little time. In the moments of calm and thinking moments, he seemed to be scared. But his fear seemed to wither away when he saw me. But in that instant i left his sight, he would grow wary and fearful. He spoke very little during my time near him. And when he did, he spoke of forgetting and some strange disease. I barely understood him, but he looked at me, hoping I knew what he was saying. I left where he was staying at with a worry. Then a year later, I found him in frantic and constant state of panic, only followed by him simply staring away into nothingness. He hardly acknowledged me, and did not even flinch as I left him. He was there, but his mind appeared distant. And not present. Years later, I came back to see if things had improved. He was laying motionless, still and emotionless. But this time, I stayed longer and tried talking to the man. And suddenly, to one of my questions, he replied, No, no, not that. I tried to get him to speak again. Nothing. He returned to his dead state. I left again and prayed that he would recover. The fourth visit terrified me. The man that I had known dear forgot what felt like everything. He didn't seem scared, just stared off and did nothing. Not even a single thing changed about him. He was just motionless. I left the instant I saw this, but my friend had become... Years later, when I heard that he was dying, I rushed to the hospital they kept him at. I entered the room and was only met by an old man laying in a bed. The only sounds that were in that room were the hospital equipment and the clock that lay in the room. I stayed in his room for days, accompanying my friend, and as the hours passed, I grew less... "'and less hopeful. "'Till a voice came from the shell of a man. "'Hello, old friend.' "'He smiled for the first time in years. "'He spoke again. "'Why so glum?' "'I told him everything, but he seemed confused. forgetting. "'What are you talking about?' "'We got a patient to treat, remember?' "'I said nothing, but I gave a small nod.' We'll do it later, won't we? I nodded again. His heartbeat slowed with each word he uttered. You know, I just remembered the funniest thing. The monitors started to beat faster. There is a flower, dated to birth, called Forget Me Not. He chuckled, as the monitors' beeping sped up. Rather oh, funny. It is, friend, it is. Then the monitor's beep stopped entirely, as the body of the man I knew went cold. The Urog was somber, and looked at the blue flowers growing nearby it, and looked at me. I have other stories, but I'm afraid that it's just a burning memory. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1110 most improper, yet effective warriors, written by Lords of Jupe. Seated in a council chamber, as was befitting her station, Lorwa, House of Upsen, matriarch of the Third Battle Group in defense of the Sovereign Realms, stared in non-comprehension at the field reports provided to her by the most recently arrived Recon Unit. The report provider, Lieutenant Key of No House in particular, just an appendage to the Sovereign Realms' military, seemed remarkably relaxed for someone in the presence of a party of full 11 social degrees removed and above him. If anything, he seemed cheerful, which was far removed from the usual mood of someone delivering field recon notifications and reports. This, um... Vorwa said, tapping the data pad with an elongated and tapered finger, the gap of which was a cruel hook point, scoring a thin line of abrasion into the pad itself. Makes less than no sense. This is anti-sense. Logic has fled this device. I rebooted it six times and ran a spec scan, just to ensure that it was, in fact, showing the Sovereign's own linguistics encryption and not some sort of, uh, psychological trickery. She furrowed her brow, leaning in subtly across the desk. Squinty had a deeply subordinate figure at the opposite side. Explain. To this, Lieutenant Gee spoke. His voice steady, nurse relaxed. Even his fur seemed to have a healthy sheen, as opposed to the usual mass of tangled fluff of one undergoing stress reactions. Patron Lorwa, if I may, he asked, and then produced his own, almost identical, report on portable combat great pad, presenting it on a reverse to her, gesturing to the battle map. This shows the newest developments, we have reclaimed 85 star systems, 200 plus gateway lanes, and most of the previously seized territories of the Deny Fleet. He then paused. Who are now retreating to the home sector? Then he sat upright, waiting patiently. The Deny Fleet, the an ancient enemy who knew war like fish knew water, could reliably lose a single planet after protracted ground conflict. A month of star lane engagements and the loss of at least a hundred thousand troops to each side. And even then, the chance existed that they simply poisoned the world before departing, often with the mocking media blitz hammering home the point of the true cost of war. In reply, Lorwa could only blink, shaking her head, amazed and suspicious. How? And that was when her subordinate simply smiled and replied with a single word. Terrans. The Terrans arrived on the Galactic Collective's attention due to a mismanaged research satellite essentially striking their homeworld and inducing a brief, though productive, dialogue with a nation so aggrieved, resulting in the hastiest of peace treaties. The first reply, before communications could be formally established, was the open declaration of war on anything they could and did immediately detect, and resulted in the destruction of a repair drone fleet, a monitoring substation after it evacuated, and a rogue, wandering cluster of neo cosmic plant balls nobody had noticed. Suffice to say, Terrans rapidly accrued a reputation as confrontational, if sometimes a little hasty in their judgment. Since the time of full century prior, they have relaxed considerably, now simply regarded as serious, hard-working, industrious, and kind of frightening if provoked. I, am. Um, have no words for this scenario, Lieutenant. Thus I demand that you supply them. I am likely going to ask for a summary executions, starting with the First Fleet Commander too slow to outrun me, and I'll be working my way down the command chain until I'm beating your head into a hull plate. Speak fast. At those words, the once-sedate Lieutenant's fur became a wild and tangled as she had seen, and this pleased her. Inducing such a state in sheer honesty, if fearful, Bore the following testimony: It had been months since she had a ship captain's head sawn off at the shoulders by junior officers, thus motivating them and their own subordinates to excellence. Uh, um, <clears throat> well, uh, your gloriousness, I m- must say that the Terrans became involved when someone, uh, uh, as yet unnamed, sent one of the trade ships, the the, the Graceland, into firing lines of the deny fleet. Uh, a missed wild report, perhaps, um, or a communications issue. He looked especially nervous at this. After that, the, the deny did what did the d- deny do? Um, they engaged the, the new threat, and <clears throat> the, the, since then, uh, the, the Terrans have been invading our, our very field of battle space, ground, even planet-side naval engagements. Uh, they, they um... They don't stop, your gloriousness. All they do is fight. Every day, every hour, every moment. War! Again, startlement befell the commander, who squinted less and seemed more disturbed. Did every sapient who engaged in war not have significant period of rest declared at formal onset of engagement? For some, a single day per week. For others, war could last for years, provided the month-long armistice were honored that the Terrans would behave so recklessly, so violently, as to admit a single most defining characteristic of modern confrontation. It simply boggled the mind. Nay, uh, Anna, no date or time, just a non-stop war. This cannot be. She said those words with no small amount of active confusion evident. Her imperious tone, gone. All she had was a single most deranged question she'd considered in her long, long life. Was this all true? Yes, your your gloriousness. uh, Terence say, and to verify this, I consulted their own historic records, that this is how they have always done almost all of their wars. No breaks, no pauses, just save for the barest of circumstances. And even then, uh, those moments were sometimes hijacked for military gain. He gulped, shaking his head. They, um, fight like demons, ma'am. As the last word left his moor, he looked even more stricken, and a large patch of his fur adjacent his neck fell out, lost in the panic response his species had almost forgotten at a genetic level. Fighting back both laughter and terror, the commander gave a dismissive noise, motioning with a clawed finger for the subordinate to ignore the faux pas and continued, M- m- many thanks, Your Gloriousness. Um, to, to elaborate, uh, the, the Terrans also are using sublight transports as weapons more than troop carriers. Um, any vessel that cannot be brought to FTL speeds, they simply pack full of debris, weld the hulls closed, and uh, point them at anything with the knife feet markings. It's insanity. Yet, they fight for our side, Your Gloriousness. They find our people, well, um, of value. A term that the Ver themselves used when referring to a species that requires elevation, protection, and if needed, avenging. That the Terrans would use their own term to describe the fearsome and mighty Ver of the Sovereign Realms. It transcended insult and entered into the domain of absolute madness. I presume that was a mistranslation, Lieutenant, to this. The underling could only give a hapless shrug, helpless in the face of reported facts. No, your Grace, um, that's um, how they feel about us. Uh, they that we um, uh, that that we aren't a threat to them, and that uh, we 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 need th- this assistance. At that, the commander rose to a full height, blinking in shock, and approached the nearest bulkhead portal, looking through the armored crystal groan onto some backwater hellhole, and placed into a hull of her favorite flagship. Seeing not a single vessel of a thousand plus ships waiting for the next wave of reinforcements, who would not prove necessary. A thing of curiosity, worry, concern. And as she listened to the continued words of handling, underling, Irrelevance. The, um, daren say th- that they'll be done by the time that we can move our fleet into the next position, uh, And that they've sent a cadre to represent them here, and, uh, they're waiting outside these chambers. A chunk of Laura's hair fell from her head, lost to the floor's automated cleaners. An event which induced her underling to essentially become bald. Sitting in his chair like a hairless rat egg, shaking as the terror that she'd felt then radiated back to him. No wonder he felt so calm, she mused with the devil's owl itself behind him. With that, she turned, looking not at the underling but the door, and gave the command to open. To this it did, and then entered five tall, broad-chested individuals sealed behind bioplast suits, their masks concealing their identities, the variance between gas mixtures needed for survival was a large one, and the Terrans seemed content to bring their own atmosphere with them. As one, they did not bow, as was tradition for meeting a commander, but took a knee, as they would with meeting the Sovereign themselves. If a hair could rejoin with a body, it would have, and lengthened twice over, such was her amazement. Commander Lorwa, House Absin, Matriarch of the Third, we are honored to be in your presence. May joy find you, and may you find joy... A crisp, formal delivery of the variant was not of some clunky linguistic module built into their armor. It was that of a studied vocalization, a language which took most cultures upwards of two centuries to absorb enough to teach their own students in. And they spoke it, as would clever children or particularly slow teens. And as one, they rose, heads cantered to the side, not meeting her gaze, demonstrating further cultural awareness. A move taught to those, even glimpsing the Sovereign's image. I uh, am honored and unaware of your names. Only your species, which is um, Terrans. And as one, the Terrans removed their helmets, a set of tubes affixed to their throats indicating the further treatment that they must have endured. Surgical or cybernetic enhancement, just to breathe and speak host species' atmosphere. Their skins had hairless for three of the five, and the two which wore hair had luxurious, blowing sections of it around their mouths and beneath their nostrils. I am Commander Kilmeray of the First Marines, and I am joined by my subordinates, who have elected to be irrelevant for this meeting. The woman who spoke did so with some degree of force in her voice, her chin raised as to due all commanders. You're subordinate by... uh, 11 Degrees was rescued by one of our patrol ships and returned to you. We felt that we should ensure of his continued health and make your acquaintance before returning to the remains of the war. Then she gave a warm, open smile, her teeth concealed, a signal of non-aggression shared amongst most sapient life-forms. To this, the varying commander motioned for the guests to take seats, which they did, though out of sequence, A forgivable error in protocol. She found her chair remarkably difficult to rejoin, almost stumbling herself, and reclaimed her honor by clearing her throat and motioning to her subordinate, who looked a little less stricken and a little more starstruck. Remains of war, you say? Blorwa asked, her question spoken as if a minor impulse. To that, the Terran commander gave a subtle nod. Indeed, your gloriousness. We feel that the engagements to mop up what is left of the deny homeworld should take us, uh, give or take, around a week. We have a holiday coming up, so we're doubling down to get this done. She then gave a wan, friendly smile, exposing enough teeth to show her species was an omnivore or casual predator. The sign of an equal seeking an equal. Clearly impressed, though unable to stop herself from showing it, Laura spoke her voice a little more strident than intended. I take it you are honesting the armistice arranged with the denied then. Her tone conveyed a little more hope than she wanted, yet the question stood. this the other four Terrans looked at their commander, their eyes speaking whilst their lips did not. In reply she raised a gloved hand and shook her head. No words spoken. No ma'am, she said, her tone terse, but yet... Not unfriendly. We honor no armistice, the least of all with the deny. They picked a fight. Well, we do have our reply in kind. It's a matter of the ancient ways of our people. Once more, the Ver commander was stunned, though once prepared for the moment and recovered fast. Do all them Terrans make war with our paws to honor no armistice? And with that, the Terran commander leaned forward. Planting her elbows on the table, looking nowhere except Laura's eyes, her gaze unwavering. They hit us on our biggest species-wide holiday, ma'am. Nobody gets away with that. Ever. Not even once. We don't quit until they're schooled properly. And she smiled. All of those harsh white teeth displayed. A predator's warning. To this, Laura replied by leaning in, matching the motion. She could rise to any threat, replying kind, and feel the fear radiating beyond her. Her command could never be challenged unanswered. She smiled and saw the pupils dilate at every Terran, a fact that she enjoyed. Whilst I may not eject hair in an attempt to dissuade predators from seizing them, the small sign of fearful acknowledgement was victory enough for her. Then I suppose my newest battle doctrine can use some upgrading, I like learning from the best. Gee, please see to our guests joining us in the strategic planning meeting. Make accommodations for the atmosphere and communications as needed. Without looking, she dismissed the lieutenant, still looking into the commander's eyes, neither flinching. Your gloriousness, I believe that you are starting to grow on me. I like that you didn't execute that man for the crime of surviving. That kind of thing, yeah, uh, it's um, they step in a righteous direction, ma'am. At that, Loa laughed, slapped the desk, and scratched it slightly, her teeth parting enough to show her mirth rather than her rage. He didn't tell me he'd been taken in as a rescue commander, I think to save his life. Pal, you didn't save his life, and he didn't save his life. This war is saving his life. And then she gestured to the ships outside and raised a chin in pride. Teach me how to never accept a day off, Commander. That's easy, ma'am. A pause. Never forget. At that moment, the ship traveled between her fleet and her window, the hull plates of it adorned in layers of repair modules, hastily applied armor upgrades, and even welded on satellites that must have struck it and proven too difficult to remove, thus requiring it to be incorporated into the body of the hull. The ship moved into a docking position, and all could see the troops ready to meet with their allies, each other their atmosphere suits bedecked with a unit icon. A single red poppy braced by a pair of elevens in a clear, crisp font. What does that mean, the words in the hull? Is it the ship's name? Her grasp of Terran linguistics was no source of pride for her. To this, standing at her side, Commander Kilmeray spoke. Her voice touched with pride, defiance, and sadness. Poppy! Day. END OF STORY Tales from Outer Space 1111 Human Sacrifice Written by Original Rich Game In our mythology, there is a species that is grander than all others. They will be our greatest friends and our greatest protectors. Sacrifice all for us. Of course, it's just pure mythology. Or so he thought. Humans were not exactly new to the galaxy. Indeed, they had been here for around three to four hundred years, give or take a decade. But in that time, they labelled everything bad under the stars. Class 1 warriors, Class 1 Deathworlds, and were given the official title of Galactic Apex Predator. Although they seemed to revel in that a lot more than they should. During this time, humans were seen as Class 6 military. Not supermassive, but not exactly the baby size, to say the least. My species, the girlsy, was none of these things. We were very large were a class 12 military. Toddler size, but were known as peacemakers. We had a border with the humans, but this was technically theoretical, because humans were class 0 quarantined species. Technically, this also didn't exist, but did at the same time. No interaction, no acknowledgement, and no exploration into the area of space. Effectively, it was the only discriminatory act passed down by the Galactic Accord Council. But then, one day, a human ship arrived in our space, trying to contact us. Now, technically, we were to ignore them and not acknowledge their existence. However, we also had the right to question any ships inside our borders this was the biggest loophole in all history and we were about to take full advantage of it as it turned out pop culture got humans very wrong indeed they looked comical to what we expected no pincers no claws no giants at all indeed they looked cute and squishy until you remembered the midgets i mean the tallest was 6.5 were somehow galactic's apex predators It also turned out the humans knew a bit too much about us and our space. We never found out how, but after watching the centuries-old classics and their modern remakes of James Bond, Mission Impossible, George Black, and A Trail of Lies, we kind of guessed how. They gave up coordinates for a moon near one of our colonies. It was lifeless to us, and even humans, and they were offering to pay our set-up military installation. It was close to the border of human space and the space of the Khazar Empire. The Khazar were extremely warlike and had the largest navy and army at that point. They had been the ones to discover humans after hunting them in packs on their Mars colony Gamma. This went badly for the Khazar as the entire hunting party of some 400 went missing. The humans later became noticed by the Galactic Accords as sentient, and therefore couldn't be hunted. Eventually, the Khazar stopped hunting humans. In reality, they sent out fleets of hunters which almost all went missing. This led to the humans taking over the Galactic Apex Predator title from the Khazar. This left anger from both sides that never went away, especially as the Khazar lived for around 600 years and humans could hold one hell of a grudge. Now, Again, technically we were not allowed to interact with the humans, but technically we were also allowed to sell planets and moons to whoever we wanted. But that's what surprised us the most. Most big armies usually just entered your territory and set up camp, and unless you had a death wish, you must leave them be. But the humans had asked us. With their military might, they could have done that, but they didn't. And they were willing to pay and inform us what was going on on the moon. This was so strange and too good of an opportunity to pass up. The only condition was that they build it as discreetly as possible. To their credit, they did build it very discreetly. Even we didn't realize how powerful it was, and they were updating us constantly. Then came the inevitable. The Carolina tourist liner took a detour to avoid a small plasma storm common in our area of space. When one of them noticed what looked like a military base under construction, and they took a picture that did moderately well on the social media sites. Then no one could place the architecture as it looked so different and it did better. Then some genius figured out it was probably human as no one knew what their architecture looked like and the entire galaxy lost it in anger and excitement. An inspection confirmed it was indeed human, after they were captured by humans who thought they were being spied on. However, we stood firm that it was within our rights, and no one actually informed us of the inspection which was, therefore, technically illegal, and spying so the evidence couldn't be used and the humans were within the clear. The Kazar were angry, to say the least and demanded immediate action be taken. This didn't happen, and within a few months the humans turned the moon into an impenetrable fortress of death. Then the war began. The Khazar declared war on the humans. They said that we could stay neutral, but they would pass through our space, take a moon and continue onwards. This is pretty standard for wars. We stayed neutral, and the planet was warned that they should prepare the bunkers. The humans were again breaking their stereotypes, very apologetic, and were paying us large sums of money as compensation. I was on the planet the moon orbited at the time. The new, fully fitted battle station was visible with a crude telescope, and I could see them fortifying the new extremes. Then the Khazar fleet arrived. It looked massive, and it approached the moon when the night sky burst into light. The station on the moon had long-range plasma cannons, which shredded through the small Khazar ships that had smaller shields. The battle raged and the Khazar used their advanced missiles, which we nicknamed Devastators. As they got closer to the moon, the stars paled in comparison as they were destroyed in seconds. But that didn't surprise me. We had been going down to the bunkers when we saw two Devastators, of course, heading towards us. There was panic, but then they were gone. The humans had dedicated a large portion of their base to protecting... uh, us. The Geysar left after that. The humans celebrated. We could see it from the live broadcast that they had set up. We didn't have the heart to tell them that it was a scout fleet. Obviously, the fleet saw this as a dangerous threat. Indeed, it even had a small space dock inside the moon because they came back with the first invasion fleet, the most feared invasion fleet in the galaxy. When they came, it was like death itself had come from hell. The first wave, the humans seemed to shrug off, and we still weren't hit by any devastators or anything else. Then, the second wave came in. We could recognize the Japlock, one of the most heavily armored and armed ships known, heading towards the base. A battle of epic magnitude ensued. We could see the plasma beams easily now as the human base's shields lit up as an unrelenting storm bombarded it. The shield seemed to be very powerful, and we all started guessing at how big the shield generators must have been. The Chablanc was taking heavy fire at this point. Using a telescope that filtered out bright light, I could see that they were frying on one engine and had large holes in the sides. Then came an almighty explosion and the jubloch was gone with nearly no sign that it was ever there. The Gazar were infuriated and sent forth the entire fleet. Within an hour the human shields failed and the dust from the moon was kicked up by the never-ending storm. By nightfall they were still fighting. The human fleet inside the moon had been released and started harassing their supply lines, but to no avail. What surprised me the most was that the humans were still using guns to defend us. Us? Not their allies, just normal people. Then the guns fell silent. We rushed out of our bunkers to have a look at the damage. A few places down here had been hit, but not much. Our moon, however... Looked more like an archaic early human game Pac-Man. But then, as the Khazar fleet descended to officially confirm victory, a human sent out a transmission. They were still alive. How? Surrender, the Khazar general said as they hacked into the human transmission. You have lost, you have fought more than honorably, and your names will be remembered by all peoples as great. He didn't finish. The human smiled alongside her colleagues and said, Fuck you, bitch. Then there was an explosion. We looked up and gaped in awe as the galaxy found out what the word sacrifice truly meant. They had blown themselves up. The entire base had been destroyed and almost all of the fleet in one explosion. Just then, ironically too late, the human fleet arrived. Now, it was the Khazar who surrendered. But a here, the humans conquered the Khazar Empire and set them free as democratic nation. But I will always remember the day the humans showed us sacrifice. Then we knew they were our protectors. They were the creatures of our mythology. Then... Of Story Tales from Outer Space, 1112 How Gitten Saved All of Humanity Written by A D two 2584 The Armada surrounded the Earth. More spacecraft, orbital stations, and satellites had been destroyed. Inertial dampener fields extended down to the surface, locking every atom of everything in stasis within the Planck-scale grid matrix. On the judicator flagship, the hearing began. People of Earth, you have been found to be violent, warlike, wasteful, pollutant species, unfit for a place in the galactic society. As the findings stand, you face summary annihilation. On the pedestal in front of this board... There is a setup to the Akashic field, as you would call it. Here and now will any being in space and time, not of human race, speak in their behalf, prior to their final judgment. A feral-looking spirit of a house-cat leapt onto the pedestal, sat down, wrapped her tail around in a regal pose, and lowered her chin. Yes, I will speak for the humans, she said in an Eastern European accent. "'I is Queen, um, Quinn, first cat to live with the humans.' She looked down at the side of the pedestal. "'The first dog was far too slow.' She raised her chin and faced the board, squinting her eyes, "'and too stupid to speak at this.' "'Hey!' growled the voice off to the side. Quinn swished the tail and continued. "'I will speak now, of first of home with humans.' "'I lived wild and free in the woods.' But where wicked foxes hunted Quinn and my kittens, always killed kittens. Wicked foxes. One of them, foxbacks, hunted me. Where close, Quinn ran many days, hungry. Couldn't flees the woods, out in the field of the human farm. Humans stink everywhere. Couldn't fear Hoonans. At Quinn sly, sneaky, Couldn't hidden barn. Hoonans not know at beginnings. There were many fat, lazy rats in the farm. They fat from eating the grain humans collect in the tower. One day, Quinn catched many rats and piled by side of the tower. Hoon and Papa spotted Quinn at her catch. Quinn scared. Papa seemed to understand Quinn hunt all rats and eat his grain. Papa nodded to Quinn and walked away. Was Quinn allowed to hunt? To stay? To stay in Hunan farm seemed much better than woods. No wicked foxes ever in Hunan farm. Meantime, I grew more comfortable with humans. Quinn hunt in plain sight now. The other humans, mama, Gil, and boys, watch Quinn hunt and pounce. They seem to enjoy watching from the porch. In time, Quinn pregnant once more and worry about kittens. Hunans are big and clumsy. Kittens, small and blind. Quinn was worried. When time came, Quinn hid in the corner of barn with lazy cow and sloppy pigs. The little girl spotted Quinn and kittens. Afraid for kittens, but little girl made happy squeaky noises and ran to the house. Mama Hunan came and saw Quinn and the kittens. Mama made cooing sounds and whining noises like stupid dog and hurried back to the house. Mama returned with one of the boys. She was holding a hand-knit cotton sweater, the boys holding many sticks. Kun was armed. But was okay. Mama paired a kitten bed with Mama clothing, and the boy made a fence with sticks to keep the lazy cow and sloppy pigs away. Kittens were safe. This was nice. The boys brought food and water and now cow milk to bed for some time quinn noticed not scared when hunan walked straight at quinn anymore before that would have been the scariest thing ever but Hunans are nice nice was new for quinn nice was strange new thing in cruel world in time one day little girl was out in field running around with two kittens Laughing and chasing each other around. Gwynne spotted a wicked fox on the edge of the woods. Gwynne stood up and yelled in a great alarm. The little girl, a very clever girl, looked at me. Then she looked at where I was staring and saw the fox. Clever girl screamed, turning to shout word to the house, with one arm pointing at the fox. Mama head flicker from window and started yelling at Papa and the boys inside with urgency. Papa and the boys burst out of the house at fast rush. Couldn't never seen or smelled Hunans like this before. Hunans angry. hunums for war. This was war humans. Terrible predator skills on display focused on a single intent, purpose. Papa snapped commands to the boys, and they picked up rock and spear. They fanned out and charged the fox in the woods. The fox fled in terror, and the first sight and smell of the var humans. Quinn almost fled the farm also. It was so primal, so terrifying, and a deep, instinctual level. Hunan's blood fiery with fury. But Quinn day for kittens. One of the boys dropped weapons and hurried to the kitten's. Boy heart still thumping and blood surging with what war fury. But picking them up as he saw Quinn carry them by scruff of neck. Carried safe and proper. Nice humans protect kittens, even when war humans. The boy brought the kittens inside at mama's insistence. Inside, it was warm inside, Quinn could tell. Gwen went to the door, meowing in distress about the kittens. Mama opened the door, and motions for Quinn to hurry inside. Papa returned and made some noises of protest when he saw us inside. But wow, Mama yelled and growled fiercely at Papa, and Papa submitted and backed away. Quinn had never seen Mama so fierce, so protective. Mama was acting like Mama to kittens, like Mama to Quinn, Mama set up new bed by fireplace. Boys brought food and water. Fireplace was nice, rested heat. For once, Gwyn overcame fear of fire. This was Hunan fire. Was bound, chained, bent to Hunan will. It was safe fire. Gwyn retrieved rest of kittens, and we all lay by the fire. Mama, Clever Girl, and the boys all sat around us. Staring at those terrifying predatory eyes, but with warmth and love in eyes. One of the boys reached out and touched the kitten. We all flinched, not wanting the Hunan stink rubbed onto us. But then, uh, couldn't as Isaiah. Yes, let Hunan's rub stink all over us. Yes, bears stink very much like Hunan's now. The batting was nice, after all. Felt like mama tongue grooming reminding Quinn of the safe times with Mama long ago. Next morning, Quinn yelled to be outside. Quinn wanted to try something, hurried out to the woods and began to stalk Wicked Fox from tree branches. Quinn watched it carefully, and it rummaged in the roots of the clearing. Suddenly, Vicked Fox sniffed and flinched in great alarm. The fox looked at the way and at Heckle standing straight out in the terror and panic not knowing which way to run at first. It finally bolted out of sight in a dead sprint, yes. It smelled, Gwyn. It smelled the Hoonan stink all over Quin. Kitten safe from wicked foxes forevermore. Quin, make home the Hoonans. They pet us, not realizing the tricks that we use them for. But it is good enough. Hoonan heart in right place. There, I have spoken for the Hoonans. They are far like Jess. They are all those things you say. They are a far better predator than Quinn, but you will never tell them that. But that is how the cruel world made them, and is how they has to be to overcome that cruel world. Yet they still has room in hearts and homes for Quinn and for kittens for many generations on. The cat spirit turned suddenly and leapt off the pedestal Clearly, with nothing else to say. The Amada was already powering down their weapons and the inhibitor fields, when a dog, looking a lot like a grey wolf, hopped clumsily up on the pedestal, shivering in excitement. Hi, my name is Doug, and I am a good boy, and I love them, and... Yes, yes, we're done here, the abjurecated general said as the caching field was powered down, the dog's spirit fading away. An envoy was sent to the surface with delegations to welcome the human race into the Galactic Society and to begin rebuilding. When world leaders asked what the sudden change in the Armada, in the judgment, what sudden reprieve could have changed their terrible sentence, the only answer was kindness to kittens. And that was all that was said. Gwen would have wanted it that way. End. Of story. Tales from Outer Space 1113 The Mercy of the Fae Written by Blackjack21 The Mercy of the Fae Sinowak was in a real bind. He'd always been known for his curiosity and cleverness, but this time his curiosity of his had landed him in some serious trouble. The trinket he'd found and clearly belonged to an elder Fae. Knowing that, he hadn't intended to do something stupid like steal it or break it. He just meant to give it a little look-see. Now, he was trapped. Somehow, fey magic had captured him and wouldn't let him go. His head was encircled by some translucent force field. It was almost invisible, but it caused just enough distortion to give him a headache. Or was worse, it trapped his breath. It seemed to allow just enough air to flow that he wasn't about to suffocate, but most of the air he breathed in was the hot, sticky air he'd breathed out only moments ago. The only thing that he could smell anymore was his own breath. The real danger lay in his inability to pass food or water through the magic field. Whatever transgression Sinowak had committed, he hadn't thought it was deserving of a slow and agonizing death by thirst. But that was the way of the Fay. They were strange and cruel. They were as likely to give the gift of food as they were to condemn you to death over some minor infraction, only they seemed to receive. None of Sinoak's friends or families could help. At least they'd been curious, but as his distress became evident, they cried and pulled at the strange trinket to no avail. Through the field, encompassing his head, their voices sounded twisted and distorted, making them sound like a banshee cry of the Fae. Thinking quickly, sinowak realized that there was only one chance left. If this was the magic of the Alder Fae, then only the Fae could remove it. So, with confidence born of the realization that this was his only chance at life, sinowak set out on a journey to find a Fae or die trying. The problem was, there was no guarantee that they would help him if they found one. When a fae offered you food, sometimes it was given as a gift with no strings attached. But other times, it was a recipient was whisked away into the night. Some never returned. Some were dropped off impossibly far from where they'd been stolen. Others were barely missed before they came back. But you could always tell the victim of the fae when they returned they were forever changed. There was a haunted look in their eyes that never went away completely. Sometimes they'd become obsessed with the Fae, forever looking to follow them into the magnificent halls and join in their decadent feasts. Others developed a deep fear of the Fae, and would jump and cower at any unexpected noise forevermore. But Ser had little choice, He simply had to hope luck was on his side this night, and he'd find the one that was benevolent rather than, uh, well, that was the best not thought about. As his long journey continued, Senawak was getting tired and thirsty, but he dared not lay down and rest. If he gave up now, he might never awaken. As tired as he was, Sennwijk felt a flare of hope when he found a trail left by the Fey. There was no mistaking one of their trails. They were lined with stones of unearthly quality. Everything about these trails looked, felt, and even smelled wrong. It was a clear message that no one not of their world was welcome there. If you absolutely had to cross the Fey trail, it was best done as quickly and as silently as possible. The Fae rode up and down the trails with wild abandon. The mounts had fierce, glowing eyes, breath that smelled of smoke and fire, and their cries sounded as if the very devil was on the hunt. If anyone was unlucky enough to find themselves in the path of one of these wild hunts, there was no mercy to be found. They were trampled to death, and their bodies were left as a warning to everyone else, as if to see... This is Faeland, and only the Fae are welcome here. Sinoak's mother had made sure to show him one such body when he was still very young. He'd never forgotten the reek of death, and the memory haunted him all the more at this moment. Sinoak had no intention of crossing the path and incurring their wrath, but perhaps if he wandered close enough to it, he'd eventually stumble upon a Fae- willing to help. Senuek's journey had failed him. He was past his limits and simply didn't have the strength to go on as he lay by the side of the path and contemplated how absurd this all was. He was doomed to die for something as simple as a little innocent curiosity. It just wasn't fair. That was when Senuek noticed movement in the light reflecting through the magic even distorted, he could hear the voice that clearly belonged to one of the elder Fae. It lacked the sharp, crisp sounds of the normal voice, and instead rumbled and meandered as it morphed from one sound into another, with barely any hesitation. It was as if the thing striding towards him didn't need to pause for breath as it sang. Zenowak was suddenly filled with terror. There was dark Fae. He knew it. it was obviously here to mock him at the end, or maybe to make his last moments that much more agonizing. He struggled to get to his feet, but he was too heavy, thirsty, and tired. He was barely able to bat weakly, the giant Fay has it grabbed a hold of him. The strength of the monster was beyond Senowek's comprehension. The amount of power behind each finger was more than Senowak had in an entire arm. All it would take was the slightest of squeezes or a quick twist, and he would be dead. As he feared, the fingers began to squeeze. But just as Senowak feared his bones would start to crack, they stopped. It was a firm grip, not at all comfortable. But Senewak could tell that the pay was being oddly careful as it held him. Then, the giant started pulling at the trinket which had him captive. As the trinket began to move, it caught on Sinowek's ears. He was starting to fear that he'd be torn from his head, when, with a sudden pop, the cursed thing came free. Sinowek could finally hear, smell, and see more, but perhaps that was the last cruel trick of the Fae. It was free at last, but too weak to do anything other than lie down and die. Sinowak would have cried if he had any water left for tears. That was when the Fae turned and rummaged through one of the mysterious packs some of them liked to carry. Sinewak didn't have long to wonder what he was looking for, because soon the Fae pulled out a beautiful crystal container filled with glorious water, then his mysterious saviour took out a sheet of wood and bent it and twisted it into a bowl, which he filled with the water from the crystal vial. Sidawek hesitated a moment, remembering the tales of those whisked away by the Fae for the sin of accepting an offered gift. But he was in no position to reject the which was before him. He took a careful sip. This was the purest, most wonderful water that he had had in his life. Slowly at first, then with increasing eagerness, Sinowek drank his fill. Though he kept a close eye on the Fae as he did so. He only stopped when his benefactor flashed its teeth in warning. Perhaps he'd gone too far and pushed the patience of the great being. Best not to hang around and find out. With the energy born from a second chance at life, Zinoak rose to his feet and retreated back away from the dreaded path. He was expecting to be grabbed any moment, but made it to the tree line without the fame moving from his spot. Zinoak looked back at his savior. He was more grateful than he could express, but all he could do was bark out his gentle gratitude before retreating back into the forest. Eric watched the poor little fox retreat in the tree line. He'd become across the little thing with its head stuck in a bottle. It had been too tired to escape, so he'd taken a chance to pull the bottle off and free the little guy. Even then, the fox didn't get up and run away like it should have. With the sinking feeling, Eric rummaged through his backpack, looking for his half-drunken plastic water bottle. Not having a cap, he folded a sheet of paper into a makeshift bowl and filled it with water. When the fox first began to drink, Eric noted how weak he seemed. But eventually, the little animal seemed to regain his strength, and it brought a smile to his face. Right then, the fox started away. While Eric was sad to see him go so soon, he was happy to see it feeling so much better. Once they got to the tree line, the fox looked back and let out the cutest little yip before disappearing. As Eric cleaned the mess and continued walking home from school, He did so with pride, knowing he made the world a little better for at least one little creature. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1114 I'm sorry. Written by Terran Eclipse. Rheek sat on a barstool on board a colossal Kavuk space station called Star Solace as she waited in the crowded bar full of aliens from all different species for her friend to come back from a bodily function room or bathroom, as the humans called them. Speaking of humans, she saw her human friend, Nick, emerge from the bathroom and make his way over to her. The absolute giant of a creature, big even for the already massive humans, crossed the room between them in a few short steps. Eric counted herself lucky that she made friends with a giant human. After all, having someone the size of an escape pod essentially being your guardian and best friend meant that not many creatures who would have otherwise hurt her would even come near her. For the most part. Thanks for waiting for me. I thought you might have headed back to the ship, Nick said in his admittedly strange accent. He was from a place called Scotland, where... Erik recalled in her head as he sat down on his human-sized barstool. The chiefly-made chair creaked and groaned under his weight as he sat next to her. Eriak looked down at her half-drank glass of traditional Kivik Wagner juice in her talons as she turned her head to look at Nick. There is a group of Nisviak outside. I think they are waiting for me to come out. She said a bit worried that the thought of ending back up in the hands of the Nisviak slavers. Of course there are. Eric thought darkly in her head as she downed the last of her drink. A small, fragile Evkokian, such as herself, would make a perfect target for Nesvik slaves. Then her unique grey and blue feathers would fetch a fair profit. It was even worse given the fact that nearly every species in the galaxy, bar humans, wouldn't do anything about it, saying it wasn't their place to disrupt their culture. The Nesvik were a nasty bunch who stole who they could and sold them off for a profit to the darkest corners of the galaxy to work for cruel beings in mines or factories in horrendous conditions, if they were lucky. She, and every other being in the galaxy, has heard the stories of the traditional Enzviak feasts. Her grey and blue feathers shook, even thinking about it. Nicked down the last of his alcoholic drink in hand, Humans were the only creature in the known galaxy who could drink alcohol without their insides turning to goop or being poisoned by the nasty chemicals of the drink. Ariak had tried a tiny sip of alcohol once and ended up being rushed by Nick to the closest medical center for heavy doses of anti-poison and other drugs. Well, you're ready to go, Hen? Nick said as he tapped the chest twice with a quick succession and matte black heavy armored weapons suit materialized over his body. Only his head remained uncovered as the suit's helmet was clamped on his back and he stood up and crouched forward to avoid hitting his head on the ceiling. Yeah, Iriak stood up and also was quickly reminded of the size difference between themselves and she only reached up halfway to Nick's thigh. She too tapped her chest and a much like lighter suit of armour of light grey-purple colour covered her body and wings. Right then, I'll pay for the drinks. Now you can transfer me your share once we get to the ship, Nick said before turning towards the bar to pay the hefty amount the two had drank. Fine by me, I'll transfer my share once we get to the ship, Eric said. The two made their way to the bar's exit, with Eric walking out the door before its automated blast shielding slammed shut and locked Nick inside. What the hell? Eric heard Nick's muffled yells as he banged his fist on the door. Nick! You're right, what happened? She asked back as Nick's pounding subsided. The oven door closed in my face, that's what happened! Nick yelled back through a thick reinforcement as he turned to face the bartender. Ariak's helmet materialized over her head and beak as she looked around and her two avian eyes landed on a large group on Insvik standing a few meters away from her. As she looked over them, they all turned their heads to stare directly at her. Ah, fuck. She muttered under her breath. Almost immediately, the group of seven or so turned their insect-like heads to look at each other, and then they nodded and clicked in an approval. A short and stocky Inzviek motioned towards her, and they advanced. They towered over her as they began to approach her. Stick-like appendages stuck from their bodies as two of them pulled stun guns and restraints from their belts and bags that they wore. They let off a series of clicks, which her translator picked up as, Come here, little fiddle, ball, and maybe we'll go easy on you. One of the Iriot's Talon's hand, had curled around the grip of her lace gun, and she began to back up towards the bar door, only to bump into something hard, and she spun around to see even more Enzviak had appeared from around the corner. Damn it! She thought in her head as she was completely surrounded by the insect-like creatures each clicking in precise ways of excitement so fast her translator couldn't keep up. However, a few words did come through, and she couldn't imagine, I'm gonna have fun with her, could mean anything good. Nick, better hurry up with that blasted door. Don't think I'm gonna be able to do much by myself, she thought. The largest Enzviak tried to grab her, but she dodged out of the way and shot the insect twice in his chest. The small gun burning through the chitin on the first shot and the second impacting the melting of the soft insides of the ensvik. Nick's arguing with the bartender was interrupted as his head snapped to the sound of lasgun fire from outside. Or to be more specific, the lasgun that he had specifically made for Eriak. Hull oh, sh- Nick turned to bash the door a few times, but it wouldn't budge as he turned to face the bartender while sperming at the mouth. Open the damn door right now, or else I'll rip those crab-looking arms off of you and fuck you with them. The Kaspiak bartender sighed as he turned his eyestalks upwards to face the giant human. Look, human, he said in a malice stripping from his voice, those doors aren't going to open anytime soon. And besides, listen to all the gunfire outside, it's much safer in here. Nick was tempted to melt the door and the barman with the anti-tank cannon fixed to his shoulder before he heard a scream of pain from outside. Erby! The Enzviik pounced on her as she fired a few more shots from her pistol, uselessly until both it and the talons holding it were ripped from her hand. She cried in pain as the fire spread through her body, blue blood dripping from her now talonless fingers. They ripped her armor off but along with the bodysuit underneath it, as they began brutally to beat her frail, feathered body. Eriak started to cry as Enzviak used their long, thin arms as whips and clubs to beat her. The beatings finally stopped as one of the insects wrapped two of its six arms around her neck and lifted her off the ground. We were going to just sell you off to whoever paid the most, but now I think I and all my crew can use a small bit of fun and a meal to the next station or planet we find. It clicked out as a rick's broken talons weakly scratched the chitin-covered appendages. The rest of the Enzviak laughed at her as they hurled insults. She started shaking in fear, as all she could do was pray to the ancient gods that Nick would save her. And we bribed the barman so that he would keep the blast shutters down long enough to get you on our ship. That human is not coming to help you. Nick roared with adrenaline fold rage as he smashed his plated fists against the barricade as several large dents started to appear in the door. The barman stood behind him with a look of worry now, present all over his face. Look, you can take it easy or... Uh, the chrysock bartender was shut up by a table being ripped from the ground and thrown at him, followed by a black-armoured fist, grabbing his eyestalks. Open the damned door, or I will kill you and it myself. The human said in a low, menacing voice. I mean, it's, it's automated to, to, to stay closed. It's not, not going to open. The barman said as green blood dripped from several cuts in his face before he was launched into the dented door and turned into splat. Not good enough, Nick growled as his helmet slid over his face before giving the door one final rage-fueled click. The Enzviak were cut off by several loud bangs coming from the bar and dents began to bulge outwards of the bar's barricaded door before the door was sent off its hinges into the floor. And the sight that followed will stay with Eriak for the rest of her days. Quickly, two of the Enzviak had holes the size of her head blown through their bodies as Nick emerged from the bar, his armor covered in the barman's green blood as he charged into the group of Enzviak and started tearing them apart. Nick towered over the Enzvik, as the shortest of them came to his groin and the tallest came up to just under where his stomach would be, as he grabbed the holding her and crushed its skull in his hand, and without making a sound, turned to deal with the rest of them. The other Enzwieck jumped at Nick, stabbing at him with plasma knives and beating him with clubs, but none of the attacks pierced his armor. As Nick jumped onto the back and crushed two Enzwieck stabbing at him under his immense weight, before rolling back onto his knees and smashing his head through the chitinous body of the closest Enzviak. The remaining crew of the insects turned tail and ran away, but one stayed and pulled a gun from his belt and pointed it at Ariok's feathered head. Step back, you demon, or -or 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 I'll kill her. The rather small Enzviak yelled as he pointed the gun at Nick, who was now covered in a thick layer of blood and gore. Nick said nothing. Man stood to his full height as he pulled a large slugthrower from which was magnetically locked to his leg and blew a hole through the skull of the insect before it could even react. Nick locked the pistol back on his leg and scooped up the small form of Eric in his arms as he cradled her to his chest. Oh, God, uh, I, I'm so sorry. I I couldn't get here sooner. The, the, the barman wouldn't open the door. Nick was cut off but Eric pressed a hand to his helmet where his lips would be. It's, um, It's okay. They paid the barman to keep the door shut. Eric choked out. Her eyes so blurry with tears that she could barely make out the helmet's glowing blue eyes. The final thing Eric saw was Nick's helmet as darkness took her. Nick stood over Eric's body as she lay unconscious in their ship's med bay. He cleaned his armor of blood and gore and now stood in a skin-tight bodysuit as he looked down on her solemnly. He had initially rushed her to the ship in a mad dash to have her medical facilities heal her. But her injuries were too great, and she almost died in his arms if a kind passerby didn't lend him his transport after some very detailed words about the Kivik's family. Still, he placed her on the ship's medical table, and the nanobots and AI reconstructed her body to the best of their effort. Right now, his medical AI told him the best thing he could do was put her in a coma and hope that she would wake up from it. He dropped to his knees, and he rested his pale hand on her dark grey talons. She looked so peaceful as she laid motionless on the table. Harem, Nick said in a broken voice. I'm so sorry. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1115 The Fall of Earth, written by Sure I'm Not a Robot. We would have won if they had not found us first. We were to chew them up and burn the very dirt that they sprang from. But we were not the first. They had eaten a thousand worlds before they met us. The very first feat we burned was just the beginning. Then a thousand more fell upon our people and took our worlds, scum with no politics or mercy. Just a gaping hunger in space, eating everything beautiful. And, um... The fleet ambassador looked up in the interruption. Sir, they are here. General quarters have been called and... The crewman looked at him straight in the eye. All hope gone. Just a merciless humanity that had all become. Sir, you have orders to give to the worlds. The admiral wants me to escort you. Killian flinched at that. The worry that he might fail. His word would burn the work of a thousand years. The very home of man... He stood up slowly as the crewman stepped forward. Sir, you must surrender your weapon. The crewman's face was as grey as the stone in his heart as he carefully pulled his pistol from his holster and left it on the desk. It would be there when he returned to his office. They weren't that cruel, as long as he gave the orders first. Send a message to Earth. Uh, Give the Xenos our intel and get them off our planet. Now! Gideon watched as the Earth fought back. As his fleets and his people tore the enemy into shreds, gleefully burning their twice damned ships, killing the seeds within. They didn't bother with the warrior class. That was for later. The fleet wanted to kill the infection before it reached home. So many, many ships. The Venants panicked, fecking up even more than their decision to fight here, to try and kill Earth. Earth with its billions of defenders. He almost felt hope for a brief moment as the center ship cracked and exploded and another generation of Nuns were cast into the vacuum to die choking. He smiled at the sight. He heard the nav officer first, standing not two meters away and speaking to the admiral. Sir, I have incoming enemy fleets. The man scrambled his senses, trying to pin down the invaders. Then he stopped and went silent for a moment. The admiral snapped at him. Probably, I need more than that for feck's sakes. The nav officer turned to the admiral and saluted. From everywhere. He pulled himself together. Sir, I count twelve full fleets arriving. Signals say even more behind them. The admiral shrank back in his chair. The knowledge that this was what they had expected to happen didn't help. He looked at the civilian, the one whose words were cursed. In a voice that came from every depth of hull itself, He repeated the only phrase left to him. Ambassador, I can no longer defend the system. You need to assume civilian control and... uh, and uh, prevent the enemy from using our people as food. I will engage until you have achieved your objectives. I hope someone out there will forgive us, because I can't. At that, he returned to the battle. Gillian turned to the nap officer and nodded. You are excused. I need to do the biosecurity before these orders are released. Stand aside. He was expecting reluctance, some military refusal to admit defeat. Instead, it was pity in the man's eyes as he stood back, surrendering his post. He began inputting the codes, even as the ship checked his credentials, back to his childhood and beyond. His mind was now a dark tunnel screaming for revenge for humanity. No longer a person, just a mission. A little death with his burning scythe. Credentials accepted, awaiting orders. Jupiter Station, Rain of Fire confirmed. Saturn Stations, Rain of Fire confirmed. Uranus Orbital, Rain of Fire confirmed. Neptune Arcology, Rain of Fire confirmed. Mars Notion, Rain of Fire confirmed. His voice was fainting, his throat dry. The Nervar passed him some water. The list continued. Europa Science Colony. Reign of Fire confirmed. Luna Annex. Reign of Fire confirmed. The bridge had fallen silent as they heard his every word. He reached the end of the list. The command that they have fought against so hard and would damn him for eternity. Earth. Reign of Fire. Urban. Confirmed. In front of him, flashed a single word from each of the finest works mankind had ever built. The hopes and lives of billions. Executing! The Admiral pulled what was left of the fleets together before the rain of fire began and headed for Sector 1. Hidden dark and filled with the crying refugees from all the nations of Earth. An unhappy place. One by one, the colonies waited until the enemy tried to cede their world and habitats. And one by one, they exploded and burned the ships, along with the life so carefully maintained. Many humans had stayed for this moment of revenge, preferring to die than see everything lost for nothing. The ambassador sat alone and reported. He wasn't even sure who he was reporting to anymore. The future, if they had one. Earth is different. We have pulled back to small cities. With no population pressure, it had become what we always dreamed it should be. Sure, we have tigers in London, but that is a small price to pay. We've built walls to keep them safe from us, and treasured the first mammoths to march across Siberia. It wasn't perfect, but its home was home. I blew up the cities. It was too much to ask me to hurt the animals. We are the last humans alive in our system. But now, humans must live amongst the broken rocks a dead space for a while until we can destroy this evil. Farewell, Earth. Now lost to the sight of the remains of Earthfleet as it bled, all the security protocols invented by the devious engineers and soldiers of Earthspace began attacking. Every Venance fleet was met with the sudden solar flares, exploding the moons, burning worlds. A fitting but pointless endeavor. The victorious enemy sat above Earth itself, finally. The seeding began, millions of eggs rained down on Earth, ready to hatch and devour all. The rats were waiting. Earth had been engineered for three hundred years to rebuild what had been so carelessly thrown away. With no need for food from the soil, with no reason to even stay on the planet if you wish to travel, Earth had become a wild place. Overseen and loved, but not exploited. After much discussion, it had been decided to revive any animal that could coexist with mankind. No dinosaurs, but the megafauna that we had probably eaten, and the seas, would be returned to their proper wealth. The venents rained a billion eggs onto our seas, and not one made it to adulthood. The dolphins danced as they hunted the scuttling strangers, sharing the feast with the orca cousins. The bugs poured out of the plains of Argentina and met the ants and termites, older, wiser, and better armed. Dragged beneath the ground, they fed a new generation. The dispossessed pigeons of London wrought havoc amongst the newcomers, as did the seagulls exiled from the coastal towns. The earth was undefended, but never unarmed. The wolf packs in Canada howled as a pack of strangers tried to move across the territory and hunted them slowly to inevitable death. The elk kicked them apart. The giant sloth defended its burrow with nine-inch bladed claws. The black bears preferred them to salmon. The ships of the despised enemy landed and released their call of deathly silence. One ship defended a herd of elephants in Marseille and was crushed for the offense. The Verrants took orbit and tried again, stalled by their own instincts, eggs fell, and Earth ate them. What the wasps did is best left unrecorded. Three years in space. Triage is now a curse word and we try to keep our people alive. Without allies, without hope, we are a dead thing that just hasn't stopped moving yet. Today, we take back Earth and bury our dead. Or we die and bring this to a bitter end. The fleet of the remnant of Earth arrived in the home system, expecting to see nothing but enemy. The ambassador had opened comms. Earth lives. It's still green. I God. They haven't taken it. The Admiral is calling in everyone. We live! We live! Twenty months later, mankind had re-established the first of their cities and began rebuilding the system. The verans were now terrified of the place, so they stayed away. Apparently, Earth had eaten twenty generations of its people. We have begun building up a fleet. With our world secure, we are not the same people. We are human again. And we are pissed. I've been trying to get in touch with some of our old friends. Freds. The Xenos, anyway. We attack Sector 6 tomorrow and hopefully secure our flank. I know this is the beginning of the end for these things. Perhaps we can bring some hope into this afflicted galaxy. For Earth. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1116 Human Artists Are Scary Written by Mercury the Deaner. All sapient species produce art. It's just one of the things like war. Every species does it differently, be it because of a quirk of their biology or simple environmental circumstances, but they all end up expressing themselves. Some really like poetry, some music, some even do all of it at once. Wealthy empires, the very wealthy empires to be more exact, will sometimes use entire planets as art pieces, turning continents into canvases for beautiful paintings, or paper for their poems of honor and glory. We all thought it was impossible extravagance, until we met human art. Our first contact with humanity, much like most first contacts, wasn't made by any diplomatic force. Instead, one of our scout ships found an anomaly in a nearby system and went there to check it out. It was absolute chaos there. A system with five asteroid belts. Except that instead of the usual borrowing rocks, these ones were full of green. Millions upon millions of Dyson trees had completely occupied the belts, filling them with life. Strange creatures roamed the void between the trees. When I saw strange, I don't mean the usual way of how void-born creatures are strange to our natural planet-side adapted instincts. I mean, as in they looked like planetary birds. They had wings, feathers, beaks of all shapes and sizes. They were meant to fly in atmosphere, not in the void. Those weren't even the most bizarre creatures there. Some looked like felines with weird yellow and black patterns on their skin, and others like giant armored semi-aquatic reptiles. Many of the creatures were absolutely gigantic. A few were the size of capital ships, some bigger. The scout ship tried to take a sample of one of the Dyson Trees in a desperate attempt to understand exactly what was going on, but they were stopped and apprehended by another ship. It didn't match any known designs at the time, but the sheer amount of weapons detected on it was enough to make the crew comply. What was the reason for their apprehension? Vandalizing public art. They were brought to the local human authorities, who then let them go so both sides could get diplomats ready for formal introductions, and some explaining by both parties. After a whole welcome to the rest of the galaxy part was done, we of course asked what in the void was going on during the visit to the Dyson Tree system. Was that some weird void born ecosystem that they were defending? If so, why expose it as art? They made it. No. That is incorrect. Humans didn't make it. A single human artist did it. Apparently, it was some sort of memorial to something called the Amazon Rainforest, which had apparently been destroyed when they were still in early days of space colonization. Why in the name of the void, they wasted an entire system by filling it with dyson trees and genetically modified animals? Because it was pretty. We all assumed that this was a simple case of a wealthy individual deciding to spend all of their wealth in a passion project. It happens from time to time, just not on this scale. Things were mostly normal, until the science ship found another anomaly, more specifically, two gravitational anomalies that resembled that of Dyson Spheres. The scientific community went crazy. Dyson Spheres were expensive. Only the most powerful empires in the galactic history ever made one. And after a the completion, they usually got into imperial equivalent of retirement, never leaving the sphere system and living their lives of pure luxury. And now they just found two Dyson spheres right next to each other in an unexplored regional space. Ships were sent there immediately, and it was quite close to human space, so we all wanted to get there before they discovered the anomalies. When we got there, we expected an empire of pure luxury. Stations with the only purpose of entertaining the population using the energy and materials of the Tamed Suns. What we found was war. Monstrous fleets fought endlessly in the void between the megastructures, and upon closer inspection, we found out that one of the Dyson Spheres was made up of biological material. In fact, when we looked at the debris, we found that half of the ships were made of flesh and bone while the others were made only of metal and wire with no crew inside. This wasn't an empire of luxury. This was a war between a hive mind and a sentient AI. The Senate lost all the composure upon discovering this fact. People wondered if they would interfere, and if so, which side would they choose? What would happen if one side won? Humanity's request for a seat in the Senate was put on hold in order to deal with this clear threat to the galaxy's safety. In the end, the choice was made to attempt communication with both sides. Ships with exteriors modified to look like flesh were sent to the Hive and remote-controlled drones to the AI. Both were stopped during the communication attempts by another ship. A human ship. This was, against all common sense, another art project. A physical representation of the constant struggles of the organic and ever more mechanical universe, they said. And yet again, all questions relating to why they had wasted two Dyson Spheres were simply answered with things like, uh, It's art, or It's fun to watch. We just kept finding more and more of these art pieces everywhere. A planet filled with humans, all in constant state of war full of trenches, swords, tanks, and thousands of other primitive and advanced weapons alike. Yeah, those were clones with no sentience, programmed to kill the opposing side. Why? To show the horrors of war and how it never truly changes, no matter how the technology level used, of course. A system where the AI that only uses red equipment fights another AI that only uses blue equipment using strange animal-shaped machines. The animals are apparently called elephants and donkeys, respectively. Why are they two fighting? To show the needless bickering amongst the Republican and Democratic Party, whatever those are. A star that is filled with giant ships that go in and out of it. Those are ships adapted to survive inside the stars and show them to people inside. Why would you do that? because parents and schools want to show their kids how stars work in a more hands-on approach. Void, have mercy. We decided to stop looking at anomalies near human space. In fact, we decided to stop looking at human space at all. Even their seats in the Senate was denied, mostly because the other members were scared of how powerful humanity was. Without humanity to feck up all of our conceived notions of what was reasonable, we hoped things would go back to normalcy until the alvirium came the alvirium were an extra galactic invader a biological hive mind bigger and stronger than anything we'd ever seen some empires tried to stop them but they just kept coming soon a meeting of the senate was called and the invaders were deemed a galactic threat that all empires would fight against enemies would all have to put their differences aside to fight the common foe together some suggested calling the humans. They surely had a fleet capable of exterminating a hive, and they would probably help. These people were sinus because we can't rely on humans to fight our battles. Besides, how bad could the Alberium really be? As it turns out, they could be really bad. The galactic fleets were defeated again and again by the sheer numbers of the hive, It didn't matter that for each galactic ship destroyed, a thousand Alvirian ones were burnt to ash. Not when they outnumbered us five thousand to one. We kept falling back again and again, until the Hive finally got to a populated space. This was our doom. We were sure of it. Even the humans couldn't possibly get there in time to kick down the Hive. Our egos would be our doom. Until... A fleet appeared in the sky. Well, not a fleet. It was just a single ship, so enormous that our scanners assumed that it was a fleet. The ship's sheer size was not the strangest thing about it. The strangest thing was it looked like a ship, like an actual ship for water, not what spaceship meant for the void. It had a mass of cannons on the top. Usually there is no such thing as a top for a void vessel, but this one sure had... Its bottom and lower parts of the sides were painted with a slightly faded red. The higher parts of its sides and front were painted with a black and white pattern. The rest of the ship looked like common steel. This ship slowly turned to face the Iverium, perfectly mimicking the rotation speed of ancient water battleships. It fired. The projectiles the size of corvette shot out of its mighty cannons, fire and death rained from its machine guns. Human crew the size of carriers walked everywhere on the top of the ship. Some even fell, almost as if they were under the effect of gravity, which, given the size of the thing, probably were. Just not such an extent. After 15 minutes, it was all done. The Hives fleet were all just evaporated. We knew we'd made a mistake now. We were too egotistical to ask for help when we needed it. And yet the humans still sent what was clearly their best, their weirdest ship, to help us. We called the humans and gave them an undying thanks. We'd offered them a seat at the Senate. We even renamed the system where their brave ship had fought to human strength in their honor. They asked us, what ship? Both parties were very confused now. The confusion grew for weeks until the ship reappeared in the void next to the Senate station. A single, normal-sized human came out of it wearing a void suit and asked to speak to the Senate. Yeah, um, uh, sorry guys, I just wanted to test how my new model Bismarck would do against a small threat. I'm guessing I destroyed a training hive or something, um, sorry, I I went a bit too hard on the weapons. I can pay for another one if it's bothering you this much. That day, it was decided by unanimous vote of all the Senate that humans would be alerted of any and all possible galactic threats. In return, humanity was to keep all human artists and their creations at least 50 systems away for non-human populated territories. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1117. Story number one. Earth, one out of five stars, amazing food, not worth the effort. Written by Glitchke. I gave it one star for the food. All right, seriously, nothing's ever going to taste the same again. Truly amazing stuff. Best I've ever had. That said, uh, it really wasn't worth visiting Earth. Nope, not at all. If you want authentic human food, find some restaurant on a travel station or something. One with a human chef, uh, don't, don't, don't visit their planet. Seriously, stay away from Earth. It isn't reasonable. It isn't even safe. No, I'm not kidding. Human architecture is entirely unsound. Not like uh, the building is about to fall over unsound. Their planet gets too many disasters for them to avoid figuring out structural engineering and some rather impressive material science to boot. I'm talking about safety systems. Everything is so, well, old. Like, it's not actually old. Humans maintain things pretty well overall, but really... Stairs, ramps, elevators. Install the teleporter array like a modern species. Just seriously. And that's not even the half of it. They use railings. Not decorative ones or anything, but actual functional handrails and the like to prevent falls. Ever heard of safety barrier? Apparently not the Terrans. Glass windows, safety rails, nets, and a few choice places too. I can only imagine how much the maintenance costs. And... Don't bother trying to go anywhere, you'll have to actually walk. Or rent a truly awful wheeled transport. No fully automated transit lines, no teleportation network, not even rentable hovercraft. Just wheels and your own body. Man patched us the basics of their cities. Did you know that they just left their biosphere where it was? I know it's not uncommon for planets to have a carefully manicured decorative biosphere rather than removing it entirely. But no, that's too much of a hassle for humans. You've got wild animals running, flying, and crawling around their cities. Entire ecosystems of microfauna in their houses. They can't even tame the plants. I saw things just popping up through the pavement as I walked around. Leaving a human city is certainly not for the fate of art. I imagine that in the near future, you'll actually be required to hire a human escort, if you can't provide proof of an exploration or survey certification. Apparently, those courses cover things humans consider day-to-day common sense. Seriously, the real common sense is to just replace your biosphere and regulate whatever you want to keep to carefully curated naturalist parks and museums. Common sense need not apply for humans, I guess. Because outside their cities, actual honest-to-goodness wilderness, partially or completely unmanaged, just waiting to kill you. I could understand leaving their oceans alone. I saw the planet from above, and that would be an expensive endeavor for a purely air-breathing species. But they have no problems living just about anywhere that isn't water. So why don't they properly clean a house Is beyond me? Anyway, as I was saying, truly amazing food. Just uh, get it somewhere slightly less authentic. Unless you feel particularly adventurous... Earth is an anachronistic death trap for any modern denizen of the Combine. Who invents skip drives before anti grappling? Apparently, humans do. End of story. Story number two. They have a soft spot, written by SlowAD2584. The negotiations with the human representative do not go well. I feel that they're a bit nuts, easily distracted and we rarely were able to discuss even a single point of business. It is critical that we formalize business and trade treaties with the humans, they are irrational. They lack many folks. How they got to space with this mindset is a mystery to me. I mean, I would expect just a modicum of discipline or professional respect. This is very serious socio-political negotiations, essential for peaceful cohabitation of this world, and all neighboring systems. All negotiations have been the same, a mess of disarray with seemingly random things agreed to. But this most recent negotiation had a surprising, mysterious end, and how he got to it is still a mystery to me. Below is a recording of the recent negotiation. It was an ordeal. The human words are redacted to protect the more sensitive readers of this committee. Reveal them at your own peril. The human diplomat was seated at his desk, its personal computer, documents, and folders arrayed radar before it. The human looked bored, almost disinterested. When I walked in the room and gave my greetings, the human seemed to perk up and uh, stared wide-eyed at me. Yes, uh, greetings. Uh, my name is Idil. I am a diplomat of the High Council, of course. I paused. The human was frozen in place, its eyes wide and not blinking, and an open-mouthed smile started to spread across its face. He it raised its hands to cover its open mouth. These guys, they never told me. Oh, wow, it said in a whisper behind its hand. I'm uncertain to who those guys were, but could feel the tension in the room growing as it continued to stare at me. Was the human going to greet me in return? Then it seemed to speak in that inner monologue on its head. <gasps> oh, wow! Well, well, look at you. Oh, with a cute fluffy ears and a few flu- fluffy whiskers. Well, uh, that was odd. And not much in the way of a formal introduction. Does this human not speak? But I was determined to push forward and get the negotiation started. I admit I was a little miffed as I set up my computer and paperwork on the opposite side of the table. The way his web of nose twitches he's <laughs> upset. <laughs> I cleared my throat, pushed my admittedly floppy ears out of the way behind my head, and began. Shall we discuss the various trade, business, economic, and logistical support agreements for our people? Oh, he talks. <laughs> so serious and so fancy with his business suit. Oh, oh but look, with the fluffy tummy poking out. Oh, the soft and warm tum-tums. Oh, I just want to... At this point, the human's hands seemed to reach out as if to grab me. It appeared to be a subconscious move as the human pulled its hands back and appeared to realize the impropriety. It straightened up and tried to put its face to normalcy, but failed to remove the bemused grin as it tried to get back to business. I turned my laptop computer to it to show the first data charts. The human saw the display and started to squirm as if trying to hold back from something. It failed. Oh god, the keyboard's keys are little puppy paw patterns. This distracted me from my presentation, and I looked to see that the human was talking about. I saw no pattern to speak of, and looking at the human's computer, its keyboard was a regular straight grid. Very little of what the human had stated made any sense, but I was determined to press forward. Please, uh, shall we now discuss the treaties? The human returned to a calm, grinning, slightly face and did its best to get through the presentation. When my point of discussion reached food shortages and off-wall support and subsidies, the human nature changed. It suddenly became very serious and pokers. You guys, um, don't have enough food. The presentation slide changed to a child creche soup line. Of many, many children waiting in the food line, and the human spoke. Oh, no, 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 so, so many little babies. No, I see zero problem with them getting all the food they will ever need. You just tell me their dietary needs, little mister, and uh, the nutritional content, and the tonnage, the human said in its now out loud voice, as it began to furiously type on its computer. I was relieved by this change. The previously expressed inner dialogue was alarming. And a bit hard to follow. Was this some um, progress? How strange! Very quickly, we had a treaty set up to begin delivering human gigafreighters full of basic food stalls. How uh, did we get to this? And so quickly, the cost of the food stalls was surprisingly favorable. Part of the deal was to upload to the human the slide of the soup-blind children. And in no time, all major human space factories were already committing production queues. Space truckers were already volunteering their giga freighters. That was surprisingly nice of the humans, Were they generally this magnanimous. Word from other spacefaring species painted a far different picture of them. I saw not even a hint of their warlike nature. I wonder what was so different about us. So there... That's the report. The indignities I suffered were, all in all, worth the cost for what was gained. We may need the council to analyze the negotiations, to try and discover how we came to such a favorable outcome. For now, though, I need to go buy a new business suit. My, uh, Fluffy Tubby is poking out of it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1118 They were thought to be weak. Written by TexWolf84 Humans, I'm old enough to remember a time before anyone knew who the Terrans were. It was after the collapse of the Galvor Empire. For generations, the Galvor had ruled the known galaxy. As ruthless as the Galvor were, once they conquered you, you were just glad that they weren't xenophobic or didn't believe in genocide. They taxed every species they conquered mercilessly most systems were near destitute. We were lucky. We'd had a large enough merchant marine when the Galvo came, that despite the tariffs the Galvo levied, we maintained our quality of life. They conquered us long before I was born. I grew up as a citizen of the Galvo Empire. For ten years, the Galvo were acting strange. Our few interstellar cargo ships brought whispers' words of war. Then one day, All the Galvor military personnel and ships left, all across the known worlds. They just left. Two years later, a Galvor ship entered our system. I was ensign in the civilian space traffic control service. A Galvor Republic astrogation and exploration ship exited hyperspace and requested transit instructions to our primary orbital installation. My commanding officer... A civilian service admiral allowed me to sit in where the Galvor captain entered his office. The Galvor was here to give us copies of charts, what race held what territories, navigational hazards, things like that. My commanding officer popped the chip into his terminal and stared at it a moment. Where are all your worlds? my CO asked. You've only got 17 worlds. I was surprised at that, before the Galvor had 20 worlds. Those worlds were glassed, the captain replied gruffly. Who are these Terrans? Did they glass your worlds? I was able to look at the Admiral's shoulder. A huge piece of space, larger than even the Garvols empire, had been simply said, Terran. You should stay out of their way, the Galval officer replied. The Galval left soon after. The government debated endlessly. What if the Terrans were brutal? What if they came here? Eventually, it was decided that we needed to colonize other worlds, just in case. Nearly fifteen years to the day, when the Galvor left, we entered a star system my people had chartered over a century before, just prior to the Galvor finding us. We had wanted to colonize it then, but first war with the Galvor, then the taxes and tariffs made it economically impossible to fund an expedition. There were five starships in orbit around the uninhabitable planet. Transponders blazing like stars declared that they were ships of the United Terran Confederacy. We were terrified. Word had gotten around by then that the Terran Confederacy had defeated the Galvor Empire, forced it to rebuild itself into the Galvor Republic. The Galvor had been monsters to many species, ruthless and deadly. In hushed whispers, everyone asked, What kind of monsters must the Terrans be to defeat the Galvor? I was on the bridge, now a young lieutenant in the service of the military, when the Terrans made contact. They wanted to know what we were doing in the system. The civilian head of our expedition informed her. I remember the captain of the governor-elect discussing the Terran was a male or female. We were there to colonize the planet. The human asked us the date of the claim that we had on the system. If everyone hadn't been so nervous before, they were now. The governor-elect, far more confident than he could have felt, informed the human of our date of survey that we had intended to colonize the planet over a century ago, but the galvo had prevented it. For twenty minutes, the Terrans reviewed the documents she'd asked us to provide. You could have cut the air on the bridge with a knife. Then finally, she said an expletive and shrugged. I'm afraid you'll have to give us a few weeks to get our people and tech off planet. We'll leave the buildings for you, if you want. If not, we'll use them for orbital strike practice. The bridge was silent as a tomb before the Governor-Elect replied. Uh, you, um, uh, you, you, you can leave the buildings. A few years later, the Terrans contacted us again. They wanted us to arbitrate a similar colonial dispute with the Mumior. We'd had a bit of contact with the Mumia over the years, but we weren't close. I was a commander by then and was part of the delegation sent. The human admiral approached us shortly before the arbitration, to us to begin. We'd like you to rule in favor of the Mumia, he said. We were confused. Was this some kind of ploy for them to go to war with us and the Mumia? My captain asked just that. The human shook his head and looked at him gravely. Look, uh, we know that since we defeated the Galvor, there's a lot of fear and mistrust in the galaxy where we are concerned. We want you to rule for the Mumia for a number of reasons. First, to establish a precedent for resolving colonial disputes peacefully. Second, we want to show the rest of the Galactic community that we were peaceful. Third, to earn some goodwill. Though my delegation felt that Terran's claim was stronger, we heeded their wishes and allowed the Mumia to have the planet. All was well for the next ten years. I became a captain in my own right and was given a small ship and sent to find new worlds that were inhabitable. During this time, I paid close attention to what the Terrans were doing. Five other colonial disputes came up. Two the Terrans simply walked away from. Two they stood their ground and maintained their claim was stronger. The last they called for arbitration again. The humans got that planet too. Everything was boringly normal during that time. Then I entered a system that my people hadn't yet given a name. The Terrans were there. They invited my ship's company aboard, one of their own, for a visit. Ever curious, I obliged. I was enjoying a chat with the Admiral. She was asking if my people would be open to diplomatic contact outside of our occasional arbitrations. When the Ithital task force entered the system, they immediately demanded the Terrans leave. The Terran Admiral addressed the Ithital commander from the wardroom without asking me to leave. By, uh, what well, right, and how old is the claim your people have on this system? I am the first Ithital in this system, and I claim it by right of I have twenty ships, and you have five. I see, um... Well, I have no choice but to refute your claim and ask you to withdraw. What the Ithital said next was best left unsaid in polite company but for the sake of posterity, we'll outline it. He described the Terran in unflattering terms and informed her of his intent to forcibly mate with her, and with such a vigor that her next ten generations of female descendants would be impregnated. She was not amused and terminated the communication. She asked that we leave for our own safety, though upon my request she did relay all communications between her ship and the Ithital. Despite repeated warnings from the humans that were already within weapons range, the Ithitl kept coming. Finally, just before the Ithitl were within our own weapons range, the humans attacked. Despite being outnumbered 4 to 1, the Ithitl were wiped out. The battle lasted less than an hour, with only a single Ithitl ship remaining. It was a colony ship full of civilians. The Terrans told them to return to their people and tell them that this system was in the control of the Terrans. The Terran-Issertal War had begun, including the battle I had witnessed. The Terran-Issertal War lasted only three battles. A fleet of Isatol ships arrived in the contested system and met a fleet of Terran ships. With a four-to-one advantage and the Terrans holding fire until almost exposing the ships to return fire, the Isatol had been unable to inflict any casualties. Facing the Terrans with even numbers, and the Terrans proving that their range advantage wasn't just a boast. The battle ended predictably. That very same Terran fleet then moved into the Ithitl home system, and in the third and final battle of the war, they crushed its entire infrastructure. The Ithitl no longer leave their home system. Our ambassador asked them after it was all said and done, why they pushed the confrontation. Methought the humans were weak. Giving up systems, allowing someone else to decide who gets them weakness. But they defeated the Galvor. Did they? I never read an official statement from the Galvor Empire. Did you? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1119 Story number one. Boiling Heat written by Swift Hound. Ten contestants from each race in the galactic democracy enter the dark room. It smelled of wood and fire. The small window showing a serene landscape, one full with black and white trees engulfed by green from all sides. A small lake of gently moving water behind the line of trees and shrubbery reflects the evening rays of the sunlight into the room. Every contestant takes their spot in the circular room surrounding a gently crackling box of metal. Each seat in the room is made to match the size of the contestant, so all will have a comfortable seating for the challenge to come. The stones on top of the box sit quietly as if waiting for something to happen. The first brave contestant, the reptilian crest, slams their hand onto the wooden button next to them. A loud hiss is heard from the large metal box, the stones now sizzling with excitement, great wafts of steam emanating and spreading across the room. With this, the first three contestants leave, panicked by the rushing heat felt by all. The crest laughs audibly as the rest of the contestants join in. Even though this is a contest, all present feel jovial and relaxed as the stones once again grow silent. An insectoid, a part of the solar, pushes the button firmly and holds their hand in place. With the stones now screaming, they take their hand off and sit back, leaning towards the wall. They jolt back up quickly as their back touches the wall. Once again, the others laugh audibly at the misfortune of their compatriot. Now it's the human's turn. They slowly move the hand onto the button and press it for just a moment, releasing a quiet response from the stones. The human leans back and grimaces as their back is burned by the wall. They don't move away, however, and after a while are comfortably leaning against the wall, relaxing and enjoying the moment. The sun, now intently staring at the human, copies the movements of the human, once again burning their back and having to leave as the carapace melts slightly with the wall. The six remaining wave their goodbyes to the leaving contestants as the door opens for just a moment, letting everyone feel the cool breeze of the outside. The crest begins to dramatically move their arm towards the button, but they feel the stones already hiss with heat. The small quadrupedal covered with small fur and the face of a bird had pressed theirs first, seemingly out of spite to the cress. The Yitan, now staring towards the crest, sticks their long tongue outside their peak and lets it hang towards the grass. The Yitan's moment soon ends, however, as the largest contestant in the room, a ten feet tall gory, stands up, crouches at the exit without saying a word. Once again, they all wave their goodbyes to their fellow contestant, showing respect and a few cups at their expense. The cool air, invading the room, now welcomed by all remaining. Without notice, one more leaves, the small rodent of the guillage, clearly in pain. Farewells from all and questions of concern about their condition. The door now shut as the temperature in the room keeps rising higher and higher, the remaining four all eyeing each other with expectation. The one not having pressed the button at all yet, a mischievous bliss stands up while holding the button for support as they get up and walk towards the door. Pressing each button they come across on the way. Incredulous laughter from the remaining three and jovial insults about the police continue until the door closes once more. But the three remaining, Human, Yitin, and Cress, the temperature has now climbed nearly to boiling. The Cress presses their button and forces the Yaiten to leave. The Human and the Cress both give their farewells, the Cress giving a final show of tongue towards the fleeing yaiten but the last two remaining, the human takes the hand and holds the button down, locking eyes with the crest. More and more steam escapes the stones as the screen becomes howling. Some stones even cracking as they are forced apart by the rapid change in heat. The grass now insulting the human as they run out the door, almost slipping on the wet floorboards. Every one, the human takes the hand off the button, letting the pain and burning of the skin ease. They take one final look outside the small window and smile. The sun has gone down, leaving only a reddened sky behind as a reminder of the day. The human slowly gets up, parting their back from the wall. the human skin now completely red and drenched in sweat. They open the door with a slam and step outside to cameras. Screams and cheers are heard as the human sweat evaporates, mimicking the stones in the sauna. The other contestants are ready sitting in the cool pool of water, enjoying drinks and a cool air. News crews close in on the human, only to be pushed aside. The human only walking towards the table of drinks. The human takes an entire jug of juice and chugs it with an audible gulps before sitting in the pool with the rest of the contestants. Nothing beats a real wood stove sauna, now does it? End of story. Story number two. The humans are just so cute. Written by Slow AD 2584. The dragon lounged on its mountain of ancient treasures, its oily back scales shimmering with an ultramarine blue and an ultraviolet highlights as it moved and caught stray beams of sunlight peeking through the tangled vines of the fissure above. I just find them so adorable. They're super cute things that they do. The dragon said to the being of smoke and black lightning, shackled to the wall, Release me, the smoky being whispered in impotent fury. Oh, that's never gonna happen. I've seen what you do to those cute little ones out there. I, I am not having any of that. The being shrank into the corner, resigned to sit through yet another dialogue. Have you ever seen how they sit? Like a chair thingy. Oh my god, it's so cute. How they can fold up like that. And when they tucked in their little feet underneath, oh my god, the talons clenched, gouging deep into the solid mound of gold coins as its neck shivered in delight. So adorable. Or, or, when I fly over their town square, how their all little mouths open up into little o's as they all face a track my flight over. All those tiny little circles. Oh, and when I swoop to hover over a crowd, and the wind from my wing beats their hair and clothes back behind them, oh, I just love how they look with those little faces. Those delicate little eyelids trying to cover their eyes. But they still just want to see. Oh my god, those are the cutest little faces. Now, uh, don't tell anyone, but. Uh, Sometimes I use my magic to sneak into their homes while they are asleep, to tickle their hair, just to see how they swipe and slap their heads while asleep. Ooh, I can never get enough of that. The being of smoke and black lightning stirred. Um, you walk among them. Well, sometimes it's really only way to see them, being their clumsy, dorky selves. "'Such precious little chonkers. "'Have you ever seen them try to pass each other in a hallway, "'and they step aside the wrong way? "'Over and over. "'Oh, that just makes me want to crush them in lovey hugs, "'and how they try so hard. "'Yet, pale. "'Yes, I have seen that. "'That is actually pretty adorable. "'Oh, and the way their tummies grumble when they haven't eaten in a while. Little dummy hangwee. Mm. The silky wings of the dragon crunched up and shook with delight as the smoldering eyes squeezed shut. Mm. Oh, the way their arms shiver and shake as they scramble to a pool of water after having been held prisoner without water for days. Uh, uh, what? That's horrible! The dragon's head reared back in a bold horror. And you wonder why you are held captive here, with a human village mere miles away. No, but you remind me of the one time this night in shining armor I was riding a horse, so very proud of himself, and his horse knocked him off with a low tree branch. The way he lay there like a turtle on his back, unable to get himself up. The cutest part was how his compatriots didn't help, but instead pointed and laughed at his misfortune. <laughs> oh, when they do the birdie dance—the what? You know, the the running around in circles, arms flailing, when they're all on fire. The birdie dance—that was you. All joy left the dragon's eyes, the ASMR movements replaced with a furious predatory liquid draconic prowl. It reared up like a massive cobra over the cowering being of smoke and black lightning, neon green acid dripping from its teeth as it hissed, smattering and scalding fury wherever it dropped smell, melting even the stone floor with a terrifying ease. I swore if I ever found the monster that did that. Farmers outside the village looked up, towards the distant hills. Was that an earthquake? Smoke and steam erupted from the fissures in the slope. Great hammering impacts could be felt through the soil. No volcano, no meteors were falling from the sky. So, um, that's weird. They were not too concerned. The dragon was fond of them. It would protect them. As for generations now, they shrugged and went back to farming trying to keep their balance with the continuing shocks to the ground. The clumsy little darlings. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1120 Godless, written by Mercury the Dina Almost all sentients have gods. It is a fact of the universe. Intelligent life is rare and few planets can accommodate it with even fewer being able to accommodate sentients without the assistance of gods. Those few sentients that can somehow survive in a world molded only by evolution are quickly taken as glorified pets, slaves, and everything in between, depending on what god or the holy species follows. Gods play their mysterious divine game with their chosen ones. They make them go to war, to peace, to break and make alliances. Different gods have different ideals and motives. Gods of war send their people to battle, sometimes for an honorable death, other times for mindless plundering. Gods of sights send their children to explore the unknown. Gods of commerce send theirs to acquire riches. Etc, etc. It was a game to increase their people's faith in them and entertain themselves at the same time. All species talk and worship their gods. They are the reason their civilization exists and left their planets to explore the depths of space after all. Except for one. They have thousands of names. Some call them the godless. Others whispers amongst themselves the dead race. A few named them the end of all. What many forget is that they also gave a name to themselves. Humans. By all accounts, the humans should have perhaps the most powerful patron god of all. They are strong and fast, characteristics found of the children of the gods of war, but they are crafty, greedy, and smart, all common things for the chosen of a commerce god. The more we looked into it, the clearer it became that humanity had almost all the gifts from the gods, yet they claimed to have none. In fact, they claimed that their strength came from modifying their bodies by themselves. That was truly terrifying. The first ones to meet the humans, thankfully, Base maf. They gave them a usual talk. Join us into a peaceful galaxy, and we will keep you safe, ba ba ba. The humans refused. The base maf asked the humans to please speak with their deity and tell it to reconsider. The humans explained that they didn't have a deity and got out of their planet all by themselves. We should be glad that the Far are peaceful and thus decided to leave humanity alone instead of declaring war on such an abomination to the holy. Gods know their species would not have lasted all that long. The frimulet weren't so wise, of course. A warrior species with no god that somehow left their planet, modified their own bodies, and conquered the stars. The very existence was deemed a sin that needed to be exterminated in the name of Spart. Fleets were prepared, and Spart's children invaded the human territory with no resistance. Soldiers, blessed by one of the great gods of war, were led to the human world, and a single small asteroid belt stood between them, and the nearest colony. Victory was guaranteed. The Privulet never even saw the hundreds of thousands of bombs planted in the asteroid belt. The species didn’t last all that long against the humans after they lost their biggest fleet. Upon seeing such an absolute victory by the humans, Smart himself offered to become humanity’s adoptive god. He offered them strength and power the likes of which few could deny. They shot his corporeal form with an orbital railgun. They really wanted to make it clear that they were the few. A few species and gods tried to beat the humans. Some for revenge, some to teach the apes a lesson. They all lost. Humanity soon became one of the great species in the galaxy. The type of species that shoots any and all that dared to step onto their territory, but just kept to themselves. Many were glad that they decided to become isolationists instead of exterminators. But many more, mortal and divine alike, were mad at such an attitude towards holy species and their gods. So mad, in fact, that they decided to do something never done in a millennia an all seeing divine ritual. It is expensive and difficult but with the cooperation of multiple gods and priests, it is possible to give a single mortal the ability to see the absolute truth of things, the ability to see the creation of another god species. If humanity truly was godless, then the moment the vessel gazed upon humanity's birth, they would see a common human in their homeworld amongst other animals. But if humanity did have a god, then they would finally be able to see it in its true form, and know humanity's possible weakness. A priestess of Vidium was chosen for the ritual. Her mind was young and capable, perfect for the ritual that could drive even the gods into insanity. Mortal minds lack divine knowledge, but they are more flexible than a god's, thus, the need for a mortal. Blessings were given and taken, holy alloy was smelted, and divine tears were shed. The pool of all seeing divine was prepared the priestess submerged into it he'd done it there before his trembling feet was the god and it was dead well dead wasn't the term. inactive would be more appropriate a giant blob of concentration of divine energy wouldn't really be killed especially by a mortal the man kneeled then took a closer look at the dead body it was gigantic bigger than the entire galaxies, perhaps bigger than the universe, but at the same time it was smaller than an atom. The man focused his mind and his senses tried their best to understand the impossible nature of the slain divine. They finally gave up and decided to interpret it as a white human-shaped light. The man touched the body of the dead god and could see its power, its strength. He could absorb it, he could become the god, bring back his people, build a utopia, a new age for good. He grabbed the god's flesh and tore a piece. He threw the piece as far as he could. He could see the flesh move through the air and leave the last planet in existence. The man knew what would happen. The divine energy of the piece would create another god. He tore and threw the god's flesh again and again, Bits of its eyes would become gods of sight. Muscles would become war gods. Nerves would give birth to the gods of knowledge. And on, and on. He did it again, and again, until there was only one thing left. Its heart. The man took the god's heart with care. He could feel the energy inside it. Its will to love, A will which had outdone his will to kill it. He ate the heart. The man stood once more as he felt the heart's energy flow through him like a tsunami. He knew that he was now the most powerful being in the universe. Other gods were only small bits of flesh, while he possessed the god's heart and his own will to survive and kill. He touched the planet's Sile. It was the last planet to still stand in the universe. It deserved to be more than just a grey mass. He ordered the ground to move and it did so creating mountains and valleys. He ordered rain to come, and it did so, creating rivers, lakes, and oceans. He ordered the universe to turn bright, and it did so, creating an inconceivable amount of stars. Finally, he ordered life to spring on the planet, and it did so. It wasn't like life he remembered. There was no plants or animals. Life needed to start slowly and carefully, or it would grow weak, Evolution led to strength and he wouldn't allow his children to grow weak. The man smiled and blessed the planet. Not a blessing of prosperity, but one of hardship, hardship that would be overcome and make his children stronger. His duty was done, only one thing left. He split his body, muscle and bone spread throughout the planets and washed his power and will throughout the land. Divine power greater than all the gods was concentrated into the planet's soil and core. Not in the uncaring manner the gods' power usually worked, but instead filled with a single emotion. Spite. His children would never love him. They would never care about him. They would live and die while believing that their creator abandoned them to their fate. They will grow to conquer the stars not because of his gentle guidance, but because they will wish to spite the universe itself with their very existence. And they will look into the uncaring eyes of the space and scream, I am human! I am alive! Like father, like son. Perfect. The priestess sat upon her desk as her hands shook like grass in the wind. She reached for the golden pen across from her and tried her best to write on the silver parchment. To all priests, priestesses, and other servants of the holy, I have come with grave news. Today I have completed my ritual and successfully gazed upon humanity's birth. I ask that you all confer with your leaders and deities and tell them to not anger or interact with humanity under any circumstances. They do not have a god. They have billions. And. Of story. Tales from Outer Space 1121 Delivery Guaranteed Written by Ryan Typic Theory And in an unexpected turn, the Maelor Empire has managed to push through a resolution required to physical delivery of Articles of Emancipation for the Raynor Confederacy. This has come after nearly a decade of protracted legal battles, ultimately resulting in victory and freedom for the Raynor people so long as they can maintain their hold and execute what may be fraught delivery spanning more than 30 separate galactic territories. Spokes beings for the Malar Empire state that this is a return to tradition rather than any sort of last gasp effort to block their emancipation from the Empire, going so far as to invite any beings that would seek to undermine galactic law to interfere with the just and legal transport of this document. They reiterate that they support the Raynorian efforts and only offered legal challenges to smooth the path for future species that seek to emancipate from conquer <clears throat> that seek to be emancipated from the guiding hands of an elder species. A representative of the Reinorian people has decreed this final foul move in their opposition, but stated that they had no fear that the delivery would be compromised, only offering that they received a pro bono offer from a tried and tested organization that they had full faith would deliver the hopes of their people. Here, in studio, we can only heart for heartfelt hopes that, uh... Are you fecking serious? This is the most brazen pool crap I've ever reported on. No, obviously not. I don't fecking care. They can sue me for... uh, Are you serious? Mother of worlds. Apologies for the disrupted broadcast. In studio, our hearts go out to the, uh joint efforts of the Mela and Raynor peoples in pursuit of justice in the galaxy. Run, 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 got my finger on my gun. Heavy metal to the beat. See, I'm lightning on my feet. The engine roared as a multi-ton density enhanced armored vehicle screamed through the intersection, batting aside the maintenance blockade that had sprung up 20 minutes since the package had been produced and sealed by the Raynorian center of government. Alpha to command, reporting attempted traffic diversion en route to spaceport. Over. titanium osmian gears thundered as the drivers slammed their way from second to fifth in moments, briefly downshifting to slam through the cement and steel of another hastily erected barricade. Copy Alpha. Mission are officially upgraded to Calamity-class, but record diplomatic immunity granted with standard civilian standoffs. Unidentified approaches are deemed universally hostile, we're hanging our hat on this Alpha. Full weapon loadout authorized. Show them who they're fecking with. Copy command. Alpha going loud. Throughout a 15 block radius, Raynorians flinched as a distinct throaty roar ramped up a full-bodied scream. On the thoroughfare, cars screeched as the CPU suddenly shunted them to the side, barely able to blink before a massive armored vehicle thundered down the now open roadway. Irregular contacts approaching. Roads getting crowded. I got places to be. Hear the pounding of my turret hot package in a seat. The frame gently shuddered as the gun emplacements opened fire on the speeding vehicle, splattering off like rain. Activate primary defensive package. Time seemed to stand still before the micro-rockets and trace around streamed from the armored behemoth, tearing through the slack-jawed blockade. Who the feck stands in front of a car they parked to stop you? Detonations followed the barely slowed Juggernaut as it tore through the textbook military checkpoint. Alpha to command. Looks like the Malar Empire dedicated an actual military to intercept the package. Route unchanged. Roger Alpha. Beta in route to war air hook maneuver. Give him hell. Our bullets ain't half so hard as the streets that raised me got my pedal to the metal. Why don't you try and stop me? Between the constant chatter of assault weapons and the earth-shaking barrage of armored vehicle point defense, almost no one noticed when the distant roar of a jet slid into the scene. That said, everyone noticed when the small black box zipped upwards and vanished with the boom of a near-atmospheric superiority fighter going supersonic. They mean they got our planet! The vehement exclamation, so harsh it landed somewhere between a shriek and a hiss. I'm sorry, ma'am, but uh, we were not prepared for- You had one fecking job. Get the Navy on the line. Yes, ma'am. Did you at least track the exit trajectory? Um, ma'am, we have 30 warp signatures originating from the same exit point. You goddamn imbeciles! Then burn all of them from the void! Mobilize the fleets. Whichever one pushes back is the target. Command, this is Gamma-20. Mail our naval vessels have planted tarpets. Reporting, engagement. Copy, Gamma-20. Give them hell. War space shattered as the tarpets destabilized the higher dimensions. Unidentified naval ship, this is the glorious purpose requiring you to heave to and prepare to be boarded. A silent moment in space between the stars passed before a heavy beat broadcast from the interdicted vessel. I am the thunder in the skies. I am the quake beneath your feet. Better run, little son. I got a pocket full of heat. The void lit up as collapsed neutron munitions burned across vacuum. Update on the desperate God's it! on the delivery of the Raynar and Malar's joint emancipation. More than two dozen running space battles have erupted en route from Mailar towards the galactic core. The Malar Navy is calling for support as battles against bandits have extended across nearly 20 light-years of space. Initial calls for censorship of the United Terran Planets have received a restive response confirming that the vessels in question are not Terran Navy, and questioning whether the Malar Empire is capable of protecting their territory. Despite said response, other nations have questioned the armament of said ships, stating that they are... This just in, a being of the radar confederacy has confirmed at the behest of the delivery organization the identity of those who have taken delivery upon themselves. They state, and I quote, that the organization by which we have entrusted the key to our people's very freedom is that of the armed and armored Terran delivery service. We initially kept their identity secret in hopes that they would meet no resistance in their task. However, given the continued assault by the Melaar, don't you dare cut me off. It is not a slander if it's a direct fecking quote. That given the continued assault of the Mailar Empire, they have requested that we share their identity so that they know precisely who they are. Pardon my Terran, fecking with. This opens up a hotbed of controversy, both with direct accusation against the Meila Empire and the assertion that one of the only delivery services with a 100% completion rate has taken this case pro bono. While we reach out for the AATDS, we will return shortly with an updated information regarding this galaxy-shaking event. I don't fucking care who they are. Retask the admirals. Open bounties. We are not backing down from this. Of course, ma'am. Uh, the, the Navy is repositioning. Just stop those jump-up monkeys from ruining the Empire. Yes, ma'am. Right now, she was Delta 62. Her package might be fake. It might not. Either way, there was no force in the verse that was going to stop her from making the Handoff. Settling her hands on the controls of her Peregrine 22, Space Superiority Fighter. She took a moment to breathe. Flight control, Delta 62, ready for launch. Copy, Delta 62, you are cleared for launch. Command reports, 783 irregular contacts, any between you and the Handoff. Weapons free girl, show them what it means to be an ace. Roger, Control. Exit in three, two, one. I seized the launch bay as the predatory bird tore free of the embattled destroyer. In moments, dozens of contacts turned towards the departing fighter, desperate for a bounty large enough to buy a planet. I'm an ace in the plane, so get out of my lane. Thirty barrels on the wings, do you want to hear them sing? In under a second, Delta 62 was tearing through the defensive line, engines twisting as she spiraled through the oncoming fire. I'm a goddamn leaf on the wind. Jamming the controls down, she let loose with a stitching barrage of depleted uranium and exotic particle rounds, tearing through the encirclement over the shower of devastation. Broadcast all units, we have a breakaway in Sector 2. Take them down. Do you hear the scream behind the walls? you think my engine's gonna stall? You hear the reapers come to call. I got bullets for you all. Snarling, she blasted off and heard the inertial dampeners scream as she threaded in and out of the defensive net. Friendly fire tore up and down the ranks as they attempted to bring her down, aided by a nonstop hammering of her own weapons. Damn it! Clear your lines of fire! Settling into the flow, she danced through the fields of fire, scouring down any ship that thought that they could take her on before tearing a line into the commanding naval carrier and burning past with a whoop. Behind her, dozens of fighters tore past towards the thicket of transport ships waiting around the orbital station. Damn good work, Delta 62. Control counts 82 lines to be painted when you make it back. Clear skies and smooth sailing. Grinning, she clicked off the secondary sprint rams, still burning hard towards the transport, Copy, Control. I expect my bay to be sparkling when I get back. Following our previous releases, the Armed and Armored Terran Delivery Service, also known as the AATDS, began its heady rise to acclaim as the Terran Mercenary Company, operating under the motto of Fighting the Good Fight. They primarily took contracts assisting to overthrow the despots, protecting civilian refugee encampments, and clearing bandits and pirates. Unique among similar companies, they become known for accepting unusual payments that would be handled via their own merchant corps in return for accepting contracts that would normally be ignored. Their regular acceptance of pro bono work catapulted them into the public eye, eventually shifting their primary focus from a relatively sparse planetary conflict to the transport of people and items into and out of active war zones. After receiving multiple commendations for civilian evacuation and resettlement, they became the first and only private firm allowed to purchase military hardware and Harbinger-class super-dreadnoughts from the Terran naval docks. This dispensation continues so long as their firm upholds a faultless moral standard for their operations. In time, the AATDS would become known as a preeminent transport and security service, one of only seven with a perfect record. This is on top of the allegedly possessing enough heavy armaments to compete with most spacefaring nations on an equal or even superior footing. In unrelated news, the Mailar Empire has recently released a bounty of 50 trillion credits to whoever manages to destroy the bandits that have allegedly stolen the Articles of Emancipation en route to the Galactic Core. The Raynorian Ambassador continues to plead for all beings to believe in freedom and a just galaxy. To ignore the profit bounty and to clear all non essential routes. Currently, military action has expanded to encompass roughly 300 light years of active battle. In response, the AATDS has released a statement that they retain control of the package and that they have diplomatic authorization to, and I quote, annihilate any motherfucker that thinks that they can stop us. Galactic travel recommendations are currently guiding travelers to evacuate all primary corewood travel lanes in the southern hemisphere of the galactic disk. Updates to follow. Covering all routes to the Galactic Senate, the Milan Navy waited behind tarpets, minefields, asteroid weapon emplacements, and the concentrated might of their naval prowess. All approaching ships were stopped, searched, diverted, or destroyed, and not necessarily and not necessarily in that order. The political ramifications of their actions would result in a vast number of concessions and gifts. But the Maela didn't become an empire just by letting territory go. Especially not our territory, as resource-rich and workforce-dense as the Rainarian systems. They would emerge victorious, even if the random broadcasts of vaguely threatening music were getting annoying. So run, run, run. Pull the trigger on my gun. I'm the best, I take no less. I'm burning like the sun. Admiral, we're picking up a spatial anomaly. Aboard the flagship commanding the fourth sector blockade, the commanding Maelar leaned forward with a frown. Is it the Jarrets?" I don't know, sir. It doesn't match any profiles that we have. The navigation officer idly turned to take a look. Four years of living and breathing physics saw him spit out his drink in alarm. Shields to pull, that's an Alkabiri. Drive deactivated, hammer drop in, five, four, three, two, one. Drop. nova burst as each and every particle accumulated by the ship's not insignificant volume was freed at just under the speed of light. Radiation scoured the steadily expanding volume of space in front of them as the Harbinger class for whom the bell tolls appears before the blockade measuring over 400 kilometers from bow to stern, adorned in grand cannons, laser batteries, and unending lines of point defense. It loomed over the partially shattered battle lines. A desperate call went out for the half-broken flagship, now surrounded by several kilometers of riven ships and rapidly expanded gas. Close the hull and open up long-range bombardments. They've cleared the minefield. All ships deploy fighters and bombers in defensive holding. In answer... The behemoth lit up an ominous red light and began to crawl across the hundreds of thousands of barrels, while Fritz began to warp in behind it. As frantic chatter bounced back and forth across the scrambling blockade, the deep and reverberating toll of the Grand Bell began to echo endlessly through the comm channels. Within the Galactic Senate, all eyes were glued to the hollow screens. Dozens of news channels covering hundreds of combat theatres, as a delivery service met an empire in act of warfare. Allies of Maylor shifted uneasily, given that this measure was supposed to die with a sad whimper, not escalate to the point where hundreds of delegates were screaming bloody murder as a figurative backyard turned into a war zone. Worse, the Mailar delegate, a previously delightful source of brides and campaign contributions, had snapped the arm off of her chair when their own nationalized channel had captured the first of the Harbinger-class warships smashing into the blockade. None had been breached yet, but the delegate had barely breathed since then, merely watching with an unnatural stillness as the Empire was pushed back. Naturally, there were a number of alliances and loyalties that were quietly exploring other avenues, in particular... The Terran delegate, who was cheerfully watching the broadcast with a beer in hand, had been inundated with inquiries about purchasing warships, denied, and overtures of friendship. Grab a beer. Currently, he was lording the commander of AATDS. The commander? The hardest hard-ass I've ever met. I swear that woman could eat rocks and they'd apologize for being soft. Ah, so she's a fearsome warlord, the crowd around him nodded in a sensible revelation. The chair and bent over, laughing. No, no, he chortled, wiping away a tea. I mean, technically, yes, but she was a doctor. Richard, her whole company started when she was left out to dry by the government. Under uh, Taber, Dinarin and four, she rounded up street thugs, gangsters, rebels. They would patched up, raided a government supply depot, and held the refugee encampment against all comers for something like six months, as the civil war degraded and war crimes started piling up. It wound up for being one of the most stable settlements on the planet, to the point that she widened recruiting, expanding territory, and eventually wound up crushing both the rebel and the government leadership. Shock silence surrounded him while he sipped his beer. There's a couple good documentaries on it. Honestly, half the reason the AATDS gets so much leeway is because she unintentionally conquered a planet set it back to rights, and then reformed the democratic process with measures to lance out corruption that led to the whole fiasco. Could have had a planet, but left what was supposed to be a non-profit medical expedition with a million-man mercenary company and a new mission. Not sure what the toughest gold alloy is, but whatever it is, that woman's got a density-enhanced heart of it. In the background, a Harbinger class was shown firing a rippling line of lasers that went on for kilometers. to say she's done pretty well for herself on the far side of the room the side door opened emitting a single unremarkable terran in gray jacket the delegate paused looked up at the ongoing battle surrounding them before drowning his beer son of a bitch well i think it's about done here the only other terran in the senate walked up to the master of ceremonies placing an unassuming Manila envelope before him please sign and confirm delivery the master signed before opening the envelope, half an eye on the action in the background, until he pulled out the properly sealed package, its cryptographic key gleaming on a slim steel container. His face turned white. What? How? The Terran smiled and knocked on the podium. Armed and armored, guaranteed. Moments later, the Senate erupted into conversation, and one notable shriek of incandescent rage, a nondescript Terran stepped out the door. Jacket reversed, pants shifted into slacks, and a quick swipe of their face. A completely normal Malarian office worker blended into a hubbub within the Senate complex. Lambda One to command, package delivered. Copy that, Lambda One. Come home safe. Across the galaxy, more ships retreated, losses were counted and tallied, scavengers scrambled, and the Milky Way moved on. One small step forward, into a brighter future. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.